0: Eligible items only, exclusions apply, see eBayMotors.com The following
1: program is an MLW production. Don't you know that you can save
0: thousands at SaveWithBruce.com? You don't need perfect credit or money out of your pocket either, pal. And thank God. I want to be in my own house, at save with and SaveWithBruce.com can make it happen. Cheaper monthly payments, cash out, debt consolidation, and you can even skip your next two house payments. SaveWithBruce.com. You heard me, damn it. SaveWithBruce.com. NMLS 65084.
1: Equal housing lender. This episode of What Happened When is brought to you by Audible. Audible has the best audiobook performances, the largest library, and the most exclusive content.
0: All right, guys, in order to support our show, we're going to need some help from some great advertisers. And in order to help find those great advertisers, we need to learn a little bit more about you. But we're going to make a deal with you. We're actually going to give you something to get a little something. Now, here's what we need from you. Please go to podsurveycom forward slash happened and take a quick anonymous survey that will help us get to know you just a little better. That way we can show our advertisers just how great our listeners really are. Even if you've taken one of these surveys before, please do this one. It's specific for our show, and we really need you to take it. It's podsurvey.com forward slash happened, and once you've completed this survey, you're entered automatically to win a $100 Amazon gift
1: card. So where do they need to go, Tony Schiavone? That's podsurvey.com slash happened, podsurvey.com slash H-A- P P E N E D, and thanks everyone for your help in making W H W the podcast it is. And here's what we're
0: gonna do for you, boys and girls. If you can help us get to two thousand completed surveys, we're gonna give you a bonus show. So if you would like a Wednesday edition of What Happened When as a bonus, just help us get to two thousand surveys. Go right now. Podsurvey.com forward slash Happened.
1: Welcome to World Championship Wrestling, the major leagues of professional wrestling. What a program we have for you today because we're a part of WHW What Happened When, talking about the legendary Four Horsemen. And now, let's go to the ring. And here is Hey Hey,
0: Conrad
1: Thompson.
0: Hey, hey, it's Conrad Thompson, and you're listening to What Happened When with Tony Schiavone right here on the MLW Radio Network, and we have been promoting this day forever. It's finally here. You wanted it. You demanded it. It's the Four Horsemen episode. Tony Schiavone, how pumped are you?
1: Woo! Woo! Hello, Sleptics! Boy, are we excited about this episode. And uh, I'm excited about this episode, Conrad, because I was right there. I mean, literally right there in the middle of all that stuff. No, I don't consider myself a member of the Horseman. I did run with them a little bit, which was my, my mistake. But it's it, this is part of my past. And this is part of my good past. Uh, and part of it back when I was really in love with wrestling. So I'm really excited about doing it. And we're going to be talking about guys who I legitimately loved in this business as friends and as competitors. So it's just going to be a good day.
0: It's going to be a great day. If you're kind of out of the loop, we're really talking about uh, the phenomenal new book, The Four Horsemen, uh, and you can pick this book up at www.midatlanticgateway.com. If you're not familiar with the midatlanticgateway.com website, what are you waiting for? Dick Bourne and David Chapel over there do a phenomenal job kind of bringing those old memories back to life, and they've done it here with The Four Horsemen book, Uh, If you go ahead and cruise on over to our Facebook page, we have announced four brand new book winners. So go check us out on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash WHW Monday. Dick Bourne and the crew over there at the Mid-Atlantic Gateway have donated four books. We're going to have an opportunity for you to win those books on our Facebook site. So cruise on over facebook.com forward slash WHW Monday. And uh, Tony, you've had this book for quite a while, uh, but before we dig into the four horsemen, you had a pretty eventful weekend this past weekend. You were doing a little limousine riding and jet flying yourself, right?
1: I don't know if you call it limousine riding or jet flying, but but I was doing a lot of stuff. I, uh, I was very excited about this weekend, being able to go to three different events. I went to the Legends of the Ring in Monroe uh, Township, New Jersey on Saturday afternoon of this past week. Then that night, I went to the Warriors of Wrestling, independent wrestling show in Staten Island. And then the very next day on Sunday, uh, I was at uh, Bud Carson's Pro Wrestling World in Allentown, Pennsylvania, signing autographs, reconnecting with people, and and had a great time. My first experience, Conrad, with independent wrestling. I I talked to Cornette about that. Cornette said, you had never gone to an independent wrestling show before? The answer is no, I never had. I tried to stay away from that once I left. WCW and I, I'm telling you when I first got there I'm thinking oh my goodness what have I gotten myself into <laughs> but I had a wonderful time I sincerely really did those guys are hard-working guys I'm no, I'm, I'm not going to mention any names because I'll, I'll get them wrong uh, but I know the two guys in the main event and I need to mention all the guys that were there uh, so I'll get all the names wrong but uh, the two guys in the main event one was Jason Karloff I believe Uh, and they both came to me and asked me my opinions on the match. Uh, they were very humble. They were very appreciative of my work. And it was a, it was a great two days to stroke my ego, if nothing else, make a little bit of money. Plus I got to meet some fine lady wrestlers. I knew this was coming.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I just know like, you know, in 2017, these indie shows, there's more women now than there used to be. And I thought, boy, If they've got a makeup chair,
1: Tony will find it. Well, uh, two uh, great young Canadian wrestlers, uh, Caitlin Diamond and Casey Spinelli. Uh, We became good friends traveling back and forth. They're gorgeous women, and they can work. I mean, they really can. And then the Twisted Sisters, Holly Dead and Thunder Rosa. Holy snakes. These girls – I'm telling you right now, these girls – had a match against a couple of guys. One was Jason B. Who's like the, uh, uh, runs Warriors of wrestling. I hope I got your name right, Jason. I'm sorry if I didn't, uh, who runs Warriors of wrestling. Uh, they kicked those two guys ass. Now they, they lost to them, but those two girls did things that I'd never seen women wrestlers do before because I'd been out of the business for so long. Uh, you know, I remember, Back uh, And I talked to Core Bauer about this. I remember back when it wasn't like that, and Medusa was the only really tough girl in there, and she didn't really have anybody uh, tough to work with, with exception of maybe uh, Bull Nakano, who came in. But now it's pretty apparent uh, women's wrestling has changed a great deal. So I love those girls, all four of them. Love them. L-U-V them. And I appreciate all that they've done. It was a lot of fun. A lot of fun. Well,
0: and uh, we're going to have a lot of fun on July 9th at Three Links in Dallas. We had a blockbuster announcement last week, and now everybody's excited. The super show you've always wanted. What happens when Bruce Prichard joins Tony Schiavone on a stage? Well, they're going to talk about Tony's year in the WWF. We're going to talk about SummerSlam 1989. And, of course, we've got to touch on some Monday Night Wars. But the hits keep on coming, Tony. I haven't even told you this. But I have a surprise lined up for you and you alone, and uh, Uh I'm not going to give you a hint, but I am going to say that Klondike Bill would be proud, and Uh uh, it's going to happen (laughs) on stage with a live audience, and this is not a huge venue, so we encourage you, snatch your tickets up right now. Uh, You can do that at whwlive.com, and we want to mention that this is the most affordable ticket around, really, because most of the time, whenever you go to some of these you know, signings and, and autograph sessions, you have to pay an entry fee, and then you have to go ahead and pay for a picture, and then you pay for an autograph. Well, this is VIP for everybody, man. There's not different ticket levels. So come on in, join us, one o'clock. The show's gonna start at three, but we're gonna hang out for two hours beforehand. It's gonna be one heck of an afternoon in Dallas. It's July ninth. Pick up your tickets right now. Bruce Pritchard, Tony Schiavone, all things WWF W C W. Uh, and the only place to get your tickets is whwlive.com. And you can still go ahead and cruise over and enjoy a phenomenal pay-per-view main event of Samoa Joe and Brock Lesnar at Great Balls of Fire in Dallas. So don't miss it. whwlive.com. I expect, uh, in the next two weeks, this will sell out. So hurry, grab your tickets right now. whwlive.com. Uh, anything else you want to mention about that, uh, shenanigan that we have lined up?
1: Uh, I'm I'm really intrigued now about what you've got lined up for me, Uh, because if you said something about Klondike Bill, I mean, you're not going to use a kibbasi on me, are you? I'm not. going. There will be no kielbasa will be
0: injured in the filming of this podcast. I should mention we're not actually filming it. We get lots of questions about that. Are you going to record it for the podcast? No, we are not. The only way to get this experience is our live show. So come join us in Dallas, July 9th.
1: I would like to add, and I got some names wrong very briefly, the, the guys that I worked with on the road this weekend. Joey B uh, is the man in charge of Warriors of Wrestling. I got to meet Darius Carter, Logan Black, Jason Karloff, Chris Romano, Chris Steeler, Matthew Ryan Shapiro, Rob Blatt. Uh, and, of course, uh, I was hanging out with the, the genius, Lanny Popo. which
0: oh, in gosh. itself
1: <laughs> in itself is an event. Did, and uh, a fact,
0: <laughs> did you, uh, did you ask him,
1: uh, I'd ask him before,
0: but the event you're talking about, did you see the event? Did you have a ringside seat?
1: No, no. That's, that's a, that's a, that's an urban legend.
0: No, it's not. Uh, Peggy Lathan, who listens to this show and is one of the old mid Atlantic super fans. You probably know her. I know she, Peggy very well. Well, she, uh, she told me a story and, uh, she saw Landy go one-on-one with the great one.
1: Wow. Yeah, I I didn't want to bring it up because I didn't think it was proper I mean when the fans are coming by I didn't turn to Lanny and say hey Lanny is it true Uh, I remember back in the old WWF days That one year I was there and he was the genius back then I had asked him he looked at me and smiled He said "Uh, that is a story uh, That has been around for a long time I'm not so sure I can confirm it or not And he had a smile on his face which told me he just kind of confirmed it so, uh <laughs> Lanny was there, I was there with damaged the 365 Radio R thanks to Kevin S Nasta, uh Jennifer and John and the staff there for a great weekend. So, I just want to get those names out of all the people I met and I absolutely love independent wrestling now. I I really do. I I, I appreciate the guys and girls busting their ass for what looks like not much money, you know? I mean, hitting the the road and doing all that stuff.
0: They're trying to hone their craft for the love of the game, and uh, they're leaving it all in the ring. And if you'd like to put Tony in your ring, uh, Hmm. follow him on Twitter, at tonyshivani 24 and slide up in those DMs if you'd like to book him. He would uh, love to come to a town near you. Uh, and back in, back in the day, man, there was nobody doing more jet setting than the four horsemen. And that's what we're talking about today. The horseman show has been one of our very most anticipated shows. And a lot of this great stuff, it's not on the network. You're actually going to need to take to YouTube to check out some of these old classic horseman clips. And I encourage you while you're there to go check out our friends at the GoPro wrestling YouTube channel. It's at youtube.com forward slash GoPro wrestling. Please click the subscribe now button and leave a comment, good or bad. You're going to find that our boy Andrew over there usually responds to your comments and we just ask that you support his channel. It's free and he's even given away merchandise. If you'd like to go ahead and subscribe and then email your username, that's easy to do. Just drop him a line at GoProWrestling at gmail.com and make sure you give him your username. Uh, and then he is going to mail out some surprises so far. I know for sure. He sent out an autographed Hogan eight by 10. I know for sure. He sent out a sting, uh, redefining moments, action figure, lots of cool stuff that he's given away just to go ahead and build some support for his YouTube channel, he supported our show and you should support him. He's got some phenomenal stuff on there. A series of interviews that he's doing right now that are fascinating with the honky talk man. If you like when the guys sling a little mud, you're going to love the honky tonk man stuff he's got there. He's also got some new stuff with Buff Bagwell and a very uncomfortable interview with Billy Gunn. Go check it out. Next time you're on YouTube, it's youtube.com forward slash GoPro wrestling. So I guess we'll just kind of start at the beginning. Um, and Ole Anderson, the Minnesota wrecking crew and, uh I think Arn came into the territory for Crockett 7 or 8 months before the Horsemen started loosely coming together. Uh but I know that we've talked about Arn quite a bit here on our show. Um he was obviously a big star uh and he was made an Anderson in April of 83 in the old Georgia Championship Wrestling and and the booker there was Ole Anderson. Uh allegedly Uh, This name was actually suggested by Junkyard Dog as Arn was leaving Mid-South to go to Georgia, uh, and Ole gave him the first name of Arn. And you can actually see this whole story about Anderson's don't wear fedoras at the Mid-Atlantic Gateway website at midatlanticgateway.com. So Arn Anderson was born from that day, and he arrived in Jim Crockett promotions, according to the rumor and innuendo, based on the recommendations of uh Rick Flair. And once he's in town there, um, Dusty encourages him to uh go get over. Have you heard this story? I have not heard the story. Go ahead and, and tell it to me. Well according to it's, it's be pretty good. According to Arn, uh
1: he um
0: he got the call that hey, uh Flair put in a good word, send a tape of your promo and he sent a tape of himself standing on the beach in Pensacola wearing a Yankees ball cap yeah. and um Dusty loved the tape. So he invited him to come in. He made Arn wait forever, of course, in the lobby. And when he finally gets into Dusty's office, he props his feet up and he just looks at him and says, are you the boy on the tape? Yes. In the Yankees hat? Yes. Go get over. And Arn, uh, wasn't really sure, but he thought that meant he was hired and it turns out he was, he started being booked after that, but. Uh, back in in their in their day in this conversation, uh, Dusty brought Arn in with the specific instruction of go get over. Mm. Uh, w- what are your favorite
1: memories of uh, Arn Anderson in the early days? Well, the first time I saw Arn Anderson was with the Yankee cap on when he first came in and did a promo. Now I started doing promos for and when i when I'm saying promos, I'm talking about the local promos in the backstage area, which was a converted garage that the Crockett's had used. Uh, and I started doing those in 1983, right before Starcade, and I started uh, doing part of them along with Big Bill Ward, who was a legend in wrestling in the Carolinas back then. And then eventually they moved me in and moved Bill out, uh, which kind of broke my heart because Bill was a good guy. But I, Arn was not there at first, but then he came in with the Yankees hat on. And we immediately, I mean immediately, struck up a friendship. He was just this likable guy who could talk his ass off, and I remember telling him after we became friendly, I don't know, this may have been a month down the road, a couple months down the road, you know, he wore the Yankee ball cap, and I said, you know what, I said, you may be part of the Minnesota wrecking crew, and you may have that Yankee cap on to try to divert it. But when you open your mouth, you're Rome, Georgia, buddy. So you're (laughs) you're you're not fooling anybody with that talk. And that's the kind of relationship that we had. Uh, And we still have it today. Uh, We I still stay in touch with him today. Uh, And uh, we became very close friends. Uh, He and Aaron and Lois and I went out to dinner a couple of times. Uh, And listen, it didn't take when Dusty said, go get over. It didn't take Arn Anderson too long to get over. Because back then, he could work, but the way you got over back then was being able to talk. And Arne Anderson, I think I think we all would agree, one of the greatest talkers ever.
0: I don't think um, I don't think much has changed. I think you still get over with talking, and I think uh, Arn's fundamental understanding of both of those is why he's still working today. You know, when so many others Definitely. aren't, and he's not just working; he's in a very critical role there. So. To kind of set the uh, set the stage for you, the Minnesota Wrecking Crew originally were the brothers of Lars and Gene Anderson. Uh, and then later, when Lars is out, uh, Ole brings in Arn, and at different times, they refer to him as a cousin or a nephew or a brother. But either way, they're the Andersons, and they would start to refer to Ric Flair as their other cousin. Do you remember how this all came about? Is it just... The basis of hey they're all from minnesota in storyline uh, or do you remember how all that
1: got put together that was a storyline back when it was gene and Oli back in the old mid-atlantic days right when flair first came in uh, because he was from minnesota that he was a, a cousin of the anderson brothers so that was long before i arrived that that thing was formatted or f- formulated and uh and that goes back to the fact that they all are from minnesota or allegedly from minnesota uh and um uh, That's where the Minnesota Wrecking Crew came from, and Rick Flair being from Minneapolis, he's their cousin. It's just a great tie-in.
0: So um, one of the things that a lot of people are probably familiar with from that day is that Ole kind of wore a lot of hats. You know, Ole was the booker in Georgia, uh, and obviously he was doing shots in Crockett. Uh, And he was not only an in-ring performer, but doing some booking. And and oftentimes we would see him as an announcer alongside the legendary Gordon Soley.
1: Uh, Did you ever work with Gordon Soley? It feels like you guys would have crossed paths a few times. We worked on uh, when Dusty was booking back when I returned to World Championship Wrestling in the early 90s. uh, He put Gordon and I on worldwide wrestling together. And I can't tell you how uh, how many shows that we did together when they finally pulled us apart. But I love working with Gordon. I remember we did like the first match, uh, and we were in Perry, Georgia, doing uh, WCW Worldwide. We did the first match, and Gordon said, that really felt good for me. I really enjoyed that. And I'm thinking, yeah, here I am working with the man himself, and it felt good for you. Uh, so, yeah, I got to work with him a number of times. Uh, it wasn't for very long, but it, it, was, it was wonderful. Gordon told me a line that I remember to this day about wrestling. And he said, even if you don't know what you're talking about as a wrestling announcer, if you say it with conviction, if you say it with confidence, the fans will believe it. And I remember him telling me that, and that kind of stuck with me for, for quite a while as I was moving on in wrestling.
0: Uh, it's a slow turn here for um, Arn because he starts out kind of as a babyface, I guess, and then slowly but surely – he starts to have some heel tactics, and Oli is defending him on the mic here. Uh, do you remember when you kind of thought, "Hey, man, they're really putting some 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 ump in Arn Anderson"? It's a big deal, especially in that time to be given the last name Anderson in that territory. But when you started to see, "Hey, they're really trying to push him here," do you remember
1: like when that moment was? I, I think it was from the beginning. From the first time I started uh, holding the mic for Arn Anderson in the backstage promos, I think because he could talk uh, and the and the guys were really into his rap, and I'm talking about Ole and Flair and Tully, I think it was from the beginning. Now, Ole lived in Georgia, and we did the promos in Charlotte, so I never did see Ole as much as I did the other guys. Right. Uh, Flair was always there. Arn was there. Tully was there. Baby Doll was there. JJ obviously was there. Uh, but uh, Oli, I, di- I didn't see that much, uh, unless of course we went to Atlanta and did the the, the shows at TBS, uh, and that was down the road. That was you know that was a couple of years later. But to me, from the get-go, from the time Arn stepped in, it seemed to me that they were going to give him a big push and make him a a big part of what was going on.
0: Oli had been tagging with, uh, Thunderbolt and Manny Fernandez, uh, was there to make the save when Oli finally turned on Thunderbolt. And this had the titles in a situation where they were held up, uh, and the newly formed Andersons of Oli and Arn, uh, took on the team of Thunderbolt and raging bull. And of course the Andersons get the win. This all goes down in April of 85 and the rest is history. So not too long after they're put together. Uh, they are the tag champs. And so now we've got one piece of this horseman puzzle sort of coming together. Um, a lot of younger fans probably don't have as much of an appreciation for this combination of the Andersons. Uh, the old school folks will talk about Lars and Oli and the original Minnesota Wrecking crew. Uh, people from my generation are usually really big fans of Arne Anderson and Tully Blanchard, but kind of right in the middle here with Oli and Arne. How how big of a tag team was this? I mean, this feels like one of the more dominant um hard hitting classic teams from the not from that era and from that territory.
1: Well, when I was watching wrestling, uh, and we're talking about the seventies and early eighties, mostly through the seventies and late mid seventy four to let's say eighty two before I started. That's when I watched wrestling, and for me it was Gene and Oli. That was the Andersons. Then Arn stepped in, and Gene was still behind the scenes. Fans may not realize this, but Gene was the producer of of the local promos. So Gene was still there, and Gene was an uh, <laughs> an odd character, a legit badass, one of the strongest guys I ever knew. He had so much strength in his hands and his arms. You know, he was a he was a big time, uh, legit amateur wrestler, and Gene really was was also. And Arn will tell you this, instrumental in Arn becoming who he was and thus making the Andersons, Arn and Ole, a great tag team.
0: Well, I, I can't disagree. Uh, you go back and you watch those old tapes, and uh, there's one in particular. It's um, where they wrestled the Rock and Roll Express at Starcade. Uh, right. Probably one of my very favorite tag matches. Uh, you were there for that one. Where would you rank that in the all time great tag matches?
1: I would think uh top 10. I don't know if I'd put it in the top five, but, but top 10, I'd have to go back and look at it one more time to verify that. But, uh, you got, I mean, you could just, you don't even have to look at it to look at the players, the kids who can sell the kids who know how to work. You know, Ollie Anderson was one of the great minds in the business. I always thought that I thought Oli like Rick flair when he was in the ring and calling a match, those were the great matches. And Oli had such a talent for doing things. And this was back in the old school days. And Oli used to tell me this because I did get to know Oli very well and travel with him uh, at times. You know, today they, they choreograph everything. Or not everything, but they choreograph a lot of stuff in, in the ring. And I can understand that because we're in the hot spot era or the high spot era. But back in the old days, heels were in one dressing room, baby faces were in the other. And they would come in to do, like, let's say, a house show in Columbia, South Carolina, and it would be the Andersons on one side and, let's say, uh, Thunderbolt Patterson and Rufus Art train Jones on the other. The referee would be the man going back and forth between the two teams because he could go to either dressing room. So he would come out and he'd say, well, this is the finish that the booking committee wants or the booker wants. And only would say, OK, tell Thunderbolt we want to do this, this, and this. And they go back to Thunderbolt. And Thunderbolt said, okay, that's good. Tell Ole I want to do this, this, and this. And they go back to Ole. And that's how they did the match. And then they would go in, and, of course, they would talk, and they would work a spectacular match. And that's what you saw when you watched that Rock and Roll Express match against the Anderson brothers. You saw four guys who didn't go out in the ring prior to the match and choreograph a bunch of bumps. They just worked it. They freestyled, and they did a damn good job. And I really think that that – talent and that magic is, is, is disappearing in wrestling. I, I've often thought that it was disappearing back when we had WCW Monday Nitro.
0: Well, and that's what we're talking about today, Tony, man, the, the good old days of wrestling. And back in the day, Oli was one of the owners of Georgia championship wrestling. Of course, we all know the famous story here. I believe it was black Saturday is the nickname that it gets. Vince right. McMahon buys the time. And then all of a sudden people who have been tuning in at six Oh five on Saturday are no longer treated to the NWA championship wrestling they'd grown up with. Now it's the WWF product out of New York. Uh, fans didn't love this and wrote tons of letters to Turner, trying to get back their old traditional NWA wrestling. Uh, and it wasn't too long before Vince actually winds up selling the time to Crockett for a million dollars, uh, allegedly, which helps fund the original WrestleMania. Uh, I don't know when we'll talk about this again, but, Tony, what was the thinking in the business at the time when
1: all this goes down? Thinking in the business at the time was that when Jimmy Crockett purchased the time, that now the Crocketts – and Sandy Scott worked in the back office with me uh, and Gene Anderson. I was working uh, part-time at that time. Uh, Sandy told me, he said, we are getting ready to go national. We're getting ready to compete with Vince and move out of the territories and go all across the country. Uh, so we knew this was a big time for Jim Crockett promotions. Now, looking back on it, was Crockett ready to do that? Probably not, because it was still a very small-time mom-and-pop organization. And I was—I went from the Crocketts to the WWE in 1989, so I saw both sides. I saw the small-time Crockett operation compared to really a big-time well-staffed operation that Vince had and and so I I know why in the end Vince won if, if that's the right term to use but that was the moment where we knew that Crockett would no longer be Crockett and that was the time we knew I knew that the territories would mean nothing anymore because it would either be NWA, WCW, Jim Crockett Promotions whatever you want to call it and the WWF
0: um And a lot of the confidence that Crockett had in making a bid like this for a million dollars is based on the strength of the horsemen and their ability to sell tickets and create compelling angles and put over baby faces and just draw money. Um, so they're obviously a big part of the puzzle at Georgia championship wrestling, as we mentioned, Oli was the head booker. And I'm curious when this whole time slot thing happens that we're talking about here, and now Crockett's taking over, Does this immediately kind of feel like a power shift between Oli and Dusty Rhodes, where Oli had kind of been running the show, and now, since Dusty's the Crockett guy, now Dusty has the book. Does that happen immediately, and and what's
1: that transition like? It happens immediately, but I thought the transition was, from my uh, being in the backstage area, I thought the transition was very, very smooth because Dusty – respected Oli. I don't know if they ever really liked each other or not. I, I couldn't tell you that. I don't think they ran in the same circles, but he respected Oli and they discussed things a lot. They talked about angles. They talked about things to do. And anytime Oli was involved in anything, and it had to do with the wrecking crew or Ric Flair, or then, you know, uh, as we moved on to 86 and the great American bash in the four horsemen, Oli was very much a part of that, of uh, that equation, not only as a worker, but as coming up with stuff to do. So uh, Dusty Dusty was smart. I mean, Dust, Dusty was, you know, you talked about the uh, horseman being a big part of going nationwide. Dusty was a big part of going nationwide too because Dusty wanted to do that. Dusty always had these grand ideas. Some of them worked. Some of them didn't. We saw a lot of them that worked. We saw a lot that didn't on TV. But he always came up with big grand ideas. And one of his grand ideas was to go nationwide against uh, – against the WWF. And uh, he was uh, one of the driving forces behind that. But back to your original question, he and Oli worked very, very well together, I thought.
0: So you don't think there was any sort of um, issue between the two? I mean, everybody was cool with Dusty being – because once upon a time, Oli was kind of everybody's boss, Dusty included, and now Dusty's boss, and Oli's just talent. But that's seamless, no issue.
1: Well, I'm sure there was. But – Here's another thing you have to think about, and I think Oli knew this. Oli was now back at six oh five on Saturday night, right? Where he wouldn't have been before. He just would have had Georgia Championship Wrestling. When did they have it? Saturday mornings back then. They gave him an alternate time slot, so he was now back at six oh five on Saturday nights, and Oli was probably going to make some pretty good money. You know, Oli was uh, ollie was a penny pinching son of a bitch, man. He worried. The only thing he worried about was making money, and he told me stories about how he put. His paycheck, how he made sure he put like 90 percent of his paycheck in the bank every time he got paid uh, and uh, how he and his wife would go out and would go to a drive-in movie when he would be in town and maybe get an off day or something. They would go to a drive-in movie uh, and uh, she would pop their own popcorn and uh, they would bring drinks in so they could save money to put into the bank. And Ole was a very, very rich guy around this time because he had saved a lot of money. He told me, and this was 1992, that he had $3 million in the bank. Uh, and so he was smart guy, a penny-pinching son of a gun, and as long as he made money, I think Ole was cool with everything. And he was making money. Everybody was back then.
0: Who in the WCW locker room in 1992 had $3 million in the bank?
1: I don't, well, uh, Rick Flair should have, <laughs> well, D- D- Dusty Rhodes should have. Well, uh, yeah. Uh, but no, Ole had it. And Ole also had a lumber mill too, up in Wisconsin. Yeah.
0: I, in my head, um, $3 million was only in that locker room when Ole was there or when Ted visited that one, yeah. t- that one time. Yeah. Uh, how would you compare Ole and Arn as workers? characters on the mic, ability to get over, just the overall performers in the business. Uh I, I know you have a friendship with Arn. Kind of divorce yourself from that from a minute if you could. If yeah. you were really trying to kind of rationalize who was a better overall performer in the business, where would you classify those two?
1: Well I think Arn Anderson was a better worker in the ring uh overall between the two. I think Arn was probably a little bit more, he could do a lot more. well I like the uh, the brainbuster or that that move that he would use. Ole didn't use things like that, but Ole was the better talker. And and look, I, I know if you rank the greatest talkers in the business, there's Flair, there's Jim Cornette, but Ole Anderson was a believable son of a bitch. You take a look, and you're going to see in my eyes. You're going to see the truth. I'm going to just tell you right now. Oh, don't worry. I'm not going to touch you. Not yet. I'm going to tell you this. Today is a free day. Today is the day that you and I look at each other and I admit, nice guy that you were whatever. But I helped you. You can't deny it. The days are over. I'm leaving. Next time I see you, I would suggest maybe you watch out. When Oli talked... You believed what he said. He always challenged truck drivers. He always said, if you think you're a tough guy, why don't you come out and get a piece of me or something? And unfortunately, that did happen in South Carolina uh, early in his career, Uh, and he almost died from it. But he was a believable, realistic guy. Arn Anderson, to me, was a little bit more athletic, did a lot more things that were more modern, and only was a little bit more old school.
0: Well, it doesn't get any more modern than Audible. Uh, And you were just talking about calling it in a ring. Well, we're going to call an Audible here and tell you all about the fine folks over at Audible. I have really been a big fan of this service, Tony. I've had it for years. I have it on my iPhone. I have it on my iPad. Whenever I'm at my desk or if I'm traveling, uh, that's the best thing about it to me is I can enjoy my long drives, my long flights. I've always got something to keep me entertained because of Audible. Uh, What's your favorite part about using Audible so far, Tony?
1: Well, I'm a big sci-fi fan. I'm a big Star Wars fan. I I think everybody who really knows me and knows our family, how big of Star Wars fans we are. Uh, I got my son, Chris, who has a Star Wars tattoo. I mean, it's it's, it's just a big deal in the house. So this big library that they have of Star Wars is, is just tremendous. Now, if you were listening to, say, the last one I listened to, A New Dawn Star Wars on Audible... You'd experience things like the hair raising on the back of your neck or a shiver down your spine, because you're right there. It's a performance so powerful, you can feel transported to another dimension, even while sitting in traffic, or even like Conrad is sitting at his desk. So it's it's just spectacular. It's uh, it's it's moved Star Wars, the sci-fi, and of course there's more than just sci-fi, but that's what I love most of all. It's it's really extended the Star Wars universe. And the performances on Audible are just absolutely tremendous. So it's a great experience. A and great
0: experience. How about this? You can get a thirty-day trial, and your first Audible book is free. How much does it cost, Tony? Zero. Free. Come on, guys. Free. Why wouldn't you do this? Cruise on absolutely. over to audible.com slash what happened when to enjoy Audible. You are going to get that thirty-day trial and your first book free. It doesn't get any easier than this. If you don't like it, you can cancel, but you're going to love it. Tony does, I do, and you will too. Learn more at audible.com slash what happened when. What is it again, Tony? That's
1: audible.com slash W-H-A-T-H-A-P-P-E-N-D-W-H-E-N. And do like I do. Get transported right to the Death Star in Star Wars. That's audible.com slash
0: what happened when. Let's talk about maybe one of the more controversial members of the Four Horsemen, Mr. Tully Blanchard himself. I think a lot of guys have kinda just forgotten how great Tully Blanchard really was as a heel and as an in-ring performer. Uh in my worldview, probably one of the most underrated wrestlers of all time. Uh he came to the Mid-Atlantic territory from Southwest Championship Wrestling in Texas in 1984. He's immediately programmed with Ricky steamboat. And that actually culminates in a match at Starcade. And at his side, the baby doll is his mm-hmm. valet. And you know, somebody recently said, you know, Tully Blanchard is kind of like bizarro Ric Flair. Uh, he would strut, he could work, he could sell, he made others look good. He was an awesome promo. He stayed in character and that's really kind of hard to argue. I think Tully Blanchard is one of the forgotten greats in professional wrestling. Where
1: would you put
0: Tully in your all time rankings?
1: Well, oh, Tully, Tully is top ten in my all-time rankings of great wrestlers, and the reason he was so good was, and this is not a knock on any of the other guys in the Horsemen. Tully was the best overall athlete of all of them. Uh, he was a former college football player. He could do a lot of things. You know, I remember he, I remember he would tell me sometimes. He said, "You know, there's just there's a bunch of guys here," and he wasn't talking about the Horsemen. I'm not going to say who he was talking about. He said, "There's a bunch of guys here who bless their heart." The only thing they've ever done in life is lift weights and wrestle. Uh, and uh, he said, uh, and I've done a little bit more than that. And he did. And he could do a lot of things. Uh, and Tully was like Ric Flair in that the Tully that did the promos was the real Tully Blanchard. As we know, when they people asked me how was Ric Flair away from the camera, I said he was the same way he was in front of the camera. Still is. Tully, yeah, still is. Tully was like that, too. Told he was like that. he was an arrogant prick. Uh, I hate to say that about a, a reverend now and a pastor, but he was an arrogant prick who was just – there was something about him you liked, something about him you agreed with. and uh, But
0: something about him you didn't like and you hated.
1: Sure, sure, because he was an uh, arrogant prick.
0: Uh, so what was your impression of him when he first comes in? Is there ever any sort of humbleness of nice to meet you, Mr. Shivani. Or any of that? Or is it, is it just straight to I'm the greatest of all time? Kiss my ass
1: minion. Yeah. That's what it was. (laughs) Wow. (laughs) (laughs) I like him even more.
0: This is awesome. Yeah.
1: But he, he wasn't like, he wasn't demeaning or a bully or talking down to me. He was, uh, that's my job. He was Just a a straight talking prick. And I liked him.
0: Well, so there you go. Um, yeah. You know, we haven't talked about her a lot here on the show, but I know there's one thing that Tony likes talking about above all else, and that's the ladies of wrestling. Uh, talk to me a little bit about baby doll. Um, you know, we've talked about how Medusa and Stacy Keebler and Sonny and some others were pretty roll tied and and baby Doll is roll tied in her own way. Tell me some of your favorite memories of uh, working with baby doll and maybe some things that we fans may not have been privy to that you were
1: well baby doll was a a pretty tough girl and the thing that what made baby doll so good and what made nicholas so good was her look she had a great smile she had a great presence and she came across as someone who was could be pretty tough she didn't talk much tully did all the talking so she just kind of looked pretty and when she talked she had kind of a deep voice and and I'm not so sure how great of a talker she was, but she got over because of her association with Tully and because of the things that she could do at ringside. She was a very active valet. She had great reaction when Tully would lose. She would have her hands on her mouth. She would cry. She would get involved in matches. Uh, I traveled with her a couple times, times uh, and we had long talks and and, of course, this goes back to – and I know you're going to jump on this one. Uh, I'm ready. This goes, this goes back to me getting along with women in um, a platonic sense, me getting along with women. I, But I just thought she was absolutely, completely sexy uh, in a in a rugged way. I mean I thought – I always thought that, you know, Nicola, if you want to beat me up, you can. I, I would just hang around and let you beat me up but but she never did. I I saw her uh last year at a an event uh in Charlotte and uh, I I heard her from a distance because it was a crowd of people. She said, "I want to talk to Tony Shivani. I haven't talked to him in a long time and we hugged and and talked about things and uh, as all of us she's aged uh and uh, it was great to see her again cuz she was a uh, she was a talented girl. Just know that she did travel with Tony Shivani some long talks, just me and her coming back from Spartanburg to Charlotte or coming back from Greenwood or Greenville, uh, South Carolina to Charlotte. Uh, we would talk and have uh, some great conversations. Uh, you do know, and I don't know if this is uh, well-known, she was going to be with Buddy Landell, right? And Buddy Landell fucked that whole thing up. And that actually is kind of how the horseman began.
0: Well, let's hear the – catch everybody up. You've told me this story before, but I don't know that we've told it on air. Kind of catch everybody up on exactly what you mean there.
1: Buddy Landell had won the national title at Starcade from Terry Taylor. Buddy Landell was going to be a big star. I don't think there was any question about that. Buddy was was an obnoxious guy. Uh, He could talk. And he really was one of those guys like totally or flair that were so fucking obnoxious that he was as obnoxious behind the scenes as he was in the ring. But, but he was good. I mean, buddy Landell, you know, God rest his soul was a talented guy. And after he won the title, we were going to have a WCW Saturday night and he did a no show. And I think they sent someone to check on him. And I think it may have been black Bart. I'm not sure. I may be wrong. And I'm Ricky. I'm sorry if I use your name and I'm wrong here. But uh, Bart went to find out where he was, and he apparently was all drugged out and passed out. And so Dusty said, fuck it, that's it. I'm firing his ass. And Dusty walked out the national heavyweight champion because I think Bart went and got the belt from him and fired him right there. The angle was that we were going to uh, talk to the national heavyweight champion when he arrived at the Atlanta airport in a private plane. And he is coming back from a skiing trip. And we had the, we were supposed to have the cameras rolling and he was, we were going to wait for him to walk down the, uh, the ladder there or the, the runway or the uh, steps stairs to his private plane. And the first one out was unexpectedly was going to be baby doll. And she had been, you know, her face would have been like, you know, sunburned from being from, uh, skiing and everything. And, uh, and she saw us, and she would run back into the plane, and then Buddy Landell would come out. Uh, and uh, that was all shit-canned because of what Buddy did that day. And then, of course, that led to Dusty being with with Baby Doll and, and J.J. leaving Buddy Landell. He's Buddy Landell's manager, moving in with the four horsemen. So that angle kind of helped kick-start the horsemen. Uh, they were going to pull you know, uh, baby doll away from Tully anyway. I thought it was going to be a pretty good angle. Now, who would end up being the baby face out of that? Tully uh, probably would over Landell because Landell was a good heel. Uh, but that was the big angle that, that never was. Well,
0: I'm glad it never was because Tully as a heel is what's best for business. So, Dusty Rhodes, don't come out here on television, on national television, on the Superstation, and talk like
1: you're the only one in the world that can wrestle me because I tell you what, Dusty Rhodes... You've got to prove yourself to me again because I am the champion. I am the man that dictates all the rules when it has to do with the world's television championship. And don't you forget it. Yeah, I agree. I absolutely agree. Tully Tully is a heel working against Magnum TA. Tully is a heel working against Dusty, Dusty. Rhodes. Woof. Good shit.
0: Let's talk about that. Uh, after Steamboat left Jim Crockett promotions for the WWF, Tully and Dusty began a feud for the TV title, and on March 16th of 85, Rhodes beat Blanchard to win the NWA Television Championship. And this ended Blanchard's 353-day reign. Uh, and the title would soon be renamed the NWA World Television Championship. Because if Dusty holds it, you've got to put World in there. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the two continued to feud through the first half of 85. And uh, Blanchard eventually gets the title back, but then loses it to Rhodes in July of 85 at where... The Great American Bash inside a steel cage. And he doesn't just win the title, he also wins the services of Baby Doll for 30 days. One of the more famous angles from the time. Uh, what do you remember about uh, Rhodes winning Baby Doll services?
1: Well, I think Dusty, what I remember about it, because I knew Dusty uh, loved Baby Doll, absolutely loved her. I mean, he would always say, he said, when we would look at videotape together, he said, take a look at that smile and that look. She is just so good at what she does. Uh, she has uh, had a great presence, and she's not interfering with and overshadowing Tully in any way. And that's what made him so good. Dusty wanted that to be with him, if you know what I mean. He wanted that presence to be with him because in Dusty's mind, right or wrong, Dusty was the big star of the company. So it didn't surprise me that he would have services of Baby Doll for thirty days because I think he wanted in the grand scheme of things Baby Doll to be his valet. Texas girl, he's a Texas guy, uh and she looks great, and he thought they would be a great team.
0: Uh let's talk about titles here for a minute, because the horsemen were of course famous for carrying all the gold and they had at different times what seemed like every incarnation of the belts. Uh, but there are lots of belts floating around here. You've got the world title you've got the uh, national title, you've got the U S title, you've got the TV title. Uh, you've got the, uh, world tag team title, the national tag team title. You've got the Western States. I mean, there's so many belts here. Do you think, and, and fans are critical, uh, you know, in 2017 saying "Oh, the WWE has too many belts, but goodness gracious, you guys had a ton of gold back in the day. Did you not?
1: Yeah, and that was the result of kind of the merging between Jim Crockett Promotions, if you can call it a merge, and Georgia Championship Wrestling. Georgia Championship Wrestling's top champion was the national champion. And for Jim Crockett Promotions, this is aside from the world title. As we know, the world title back then was you know, a, a title belt that Harley Race or someone would travel all over with in the territories. Jim Crockett's top belt was the U.S. title. So we, had, we brought them all together and probably should have cut them back. Now, when we started to go nationwide, we wanted something that would pull us away from being just a southern promotion, and that's when they came up with the Western States Heavyweight Championship. Uh, was Zabisco the first Western States Heavyweight Champion? If my memory served me right. I, I uh, know
0: he held it, uh, and yeah. he's the one I think of the most. But I, I couldn't tell you there are so many belts to keep up with here. You know, six yeah. man titles, U.S. titles, national right. titles. I mean, it, on and on and on. It feels like sure. there's 30 belts here. There may not
1: be, yeah. But and then, to me, it's just like everything else. You get too much of something, they all mean nothing, right? Right, right. Yeah. Uh, I mean,
0: what yeah. every promo you guys have is with a guy, a different guy carrying a belt. It becomes, right. you know, kind of like heavyweight boxing now. There's 19 different, or just any boxing. There's so many belts out there. It's hard to kind of rattle off who all the champions are.
1: Yeah, and. The one belt I wanted to talk about in particular that I hated back then was a U.S. heavyweight belt. What? It It, it was all silver. Oh, you know yeah. You it looked? Yeah, the
0: 10 pounds of silver. It looked like the, the world t- title except silver.
1: Yeah. It, no, to me, it looked like the world title that all the paint had flicked off of it. Yeah. That's what it looked like. I, I didn't like that belt at all.
0: Well, originally, re- it did have paint on it, and then okay. it, come, it came off, and then it was just silver. But I, I get what you mean in that it does look less than. But it yes. is. I guess if the world title is gold, I, I could get behind the secondary title being silver. It, it's a shame that the third-tier title wasn't bronze.
1: <laughs> well, I didn't like it. Uh, I, I like, and this is really old-school, guys. I like the old U.S. title belt that Johnny Valentine had, that Blackjack Mulligan had, that Paul Jones had in the Crockett days, which was red with a gold outline of the United States on it. I don't know if you ever remember that belt. Oh, no, I you, remember
0: it. Real you may, well. you
1: may own the thing. I'm not so sure, but, uh, to me, that was one of the classic belts.
0: I do not own it, but I do know that our great friend of the show, Mr. Dave Milliken actually makes copies based off of the original. So you kind of get that old school cast. And, uh, yeah. uh, it's, it's fun to go back and think about, you know, the belts we all grew up on and the guy who collected the most belts, of course, the leader of the four horsemen himself, at least in my worldview, the lead singer, Mr. Ric Flair. Uh, this show is basically all about Ric Flair because not this episode, I mean, this series of shows, because we're covering all things, Jim Crockett promotions and WCW and Ric Flair is the guy I think most people consider to be the person they most closely associate with Jim Crockett, NWA, WCW. Uh, and, and I'm sure we'll talk about him quite a bit in the future as well, but Flair as the world champion, uh, meant a lot more back then than it does now. Uh, and, and a lot of our younger fans may not really understand why we say that what 's your worldview on why the world champion meant so much at the time tony
1: world champion meant so much at the time because the territories were still important back then, right at the beginning. Uh, the world champion was a guy who you brought in if you were a Bob Geigel or if uh, even you know they even would bring him into the wWF Back then, when back in the old territory days, go down to Florida with the Grams, and it meant something special that he would come in with the World Heavyweight Championship. And I'm even going back before Flair to uh Harley Race to Jack Briscoe to the Funks. Uh that was something special, was elevated. The world heavyweight champion, the old NWA world heavyweight champion, and I'm sure you know this, was booked not booked by a territory, it was booked by a person. I believe Jim Barnett was the guy that booked him uh back then. Uh it just it was it was something special. When you had a big event, it it, it let's say you would have a big event in St. Louis, or you would have a big event in Charlotte or in Greensboro, or even a big event in Texas, uh, and you had the blow off of your angle, uh you would also bring the world heavyweight champion in for a match as well to elevate that card because, oh, we've got, my goodness, I'll give you a perfect example. Uh, We've got Blackjack Mulligan and Ric Flair, and they're finally going to face each other at the Greensboro Coliseum. And I'm saying this because I was a part of it uh, as a fan at the Greensboro Coliseum, and guess what? Harley raced the world heavyweight champions coming in to face Dick Murdoch. So that made the entire card seem bigger just by having the world champion on it. And Flair was one of those guys because of his presence, because he could do great interviews for different towns, was one of the guys who was, uh, associated with being one of the great world champions of all time.
0: Um, and, and that kind of changes the committee at least because by late 85, you know, Crockett has emerged as the major player and some of the territories have kind of just went by the wayside. So by then, it's essentially Crockett and Dusty making the decisions as to who will be the champ, but even then they're still picking Ric Flair. Um, most people believe that Ric Flair is either the number one or number two greatest wrestler of all time. The only common name that you hear pop up is Shawn Michaels. Uh, you had the pleasure of, uh, seeing a lot of their matches from both of those guys, but obviously you worked a lot closer with Rick. Are you... Uh, of the same opinion as most that Rick is one of the greatest, or do you consider him the greatest?
1: I consider him the greatest wrestler ever. Uh, and that is a combination of being able to work to being able to call a match. If you know what, by now, everybody knows what we mean by being able to call a match. When you work with Ric Flair, he was in charge of the match. He called all the spots and his being able to talk. I think he was the greatest wrestler of all time, bar none. Uh, And he may have not, in the scheme of things, been the biggest star of all time compared to maybe Hulk Hogan, The Rock, or even Steve Austin. Uh, But he was the greatest wrestler of all those and the greatest performer, I think. Uh, I go back to a story that I have told before, and I may have told it here on this program If I have, I'm sorry, I'm going to repeat myself. Great American Bash, Charlotte, outside at the old Charlotte uh, Stadium. Uh, The main event was Ricky Morton and Ric Flair. And Ric Flair was a world champion. Morton came in. They had a match. And their match was absolutely freaking sensational. And from the go, when the bell rang, they were into it. There was not a lot of strutting by Flair, not a lot of talking. They just went at it. And I mean, they, they may have gone at it for 30 minutes. I'm not so sure. 20 minutes, 30 minutes. And I remember afterwards going to Ricky Morton and saying, Jesus, Ricky, you guys from the time the bell rung were kicking ass. That was tremendous. And his response to me was, that's why Ric Flair is the world heavyweight champion. Ric Flair knew had been watching what was going on in the card and knew the card was a little bit slow. And the action had started to drag a little bit right to the time they got to their match. Flair, knowing this and knowing how the crowd was, wanted to really pick it up to make his match even more special than anybody else's. And so he called that whole match and really put a lot of juice into it and made the night seem tremendous. Flair Flair had a had a sense of that, that business that, that a lot of people never had.
0: What do you think made Ric Flair, Ric Flair, because there's been so many wrestlers before him and so many wrestlers after him, and there's lots of criticisms about Flair and, you know, his promos going long or, uh, you know, sometimes being rambling and then other times people would say, Oh, he works the same formula of a match. And one Ric Flair match is the same and he does the same spots in every match, but, For whatever reason, there is a combination of intangibles here that nobody has been able to really replicate. What do you think? Can you kind of put your finger on what those intangibles are in wrestling? A lot of times people say it, I don't know what it is, but that guy has it. Can you kind of put into words what it was for Rick?
1: What it was for Rick was that Ric Flair was Ric Flair. He did not have to, he did not have to pretend to be somebody on TV that he wasn't away from the ring. And you know that as well as I do, how he is. Uh, I think that was the intangible. I think what you saw was authentic. You loved him because you knew when he was talking about limousine driving, jet flying, son of a gun, that was really him. And when he was talking about all the women crowding around Ric Flair, that was him. And when he was talking about being the dirtiest player in the game, that was him. You knew that was it. He didn't put on airs. And I think that's what made him special. Uh I know him today, you know him today. Hell, you know, in his sixties, that some bitch hasn't changed at all. At no, all.
0: No, he's been in he's uh as we record this, yeah, uh, he's been in four towns this week. So yeah, he's right. still running
1: wide open. Yes, he is. And he still runs wide open, and not only that, he gives the people what they want. They want Ric Flair to be Ric Flair. And that's what he is, and that was what he is away from it. That's 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 what made him so special. That, and the fact that he had a great savvy for the business. The Ricky Morton story is is a great indication of that. A great savvy for the business that a lot of people didn't have.
0: Do you um, it was it was it always just kind of unspoken, or was there a plan to say, hey, we're going to be a group, and Flair is going to be the leader of the group? Do you remember there ever being a conversation like that? You mean
1: on TV or out, just of, out
0: of the ring? Out of the ring as far as behind the scenes. I mean, obviously, the character is is the world champion, um, but he would also be kind of the guy in the prime spot for the promo as well. Is is he in that spot because he's the world champion or if somebody else would have been the champion? I just can't imagine. I guess what I'm saying is I couldn't imagine Axl Rose playing drums. You know what I mean? Like, he's supposed yeah. to be the front man, and, and Rick – I I don't know why, but it just feels weird that he might not be the front and center guy, uh, the the lead singer.
1: Well, it wouldn't have worked if if let let's say, and let's say, Ole Anderson was the world champion in that group, that wouldn't have worked. Flair because he could talk, and because he had such a presence, was always the center part of that, and therefore the world championship should have been on him. Uh, let me go back to something else. People have criticized Ric Flair's interviews for rambling. Well,
0: you know, I think a lot of that is just later years. People started to say, this guy's the greatest talker of all time. And this is a rambling mess. And, and, and I got dumped on quite a bit for that because everybody listening to this knows that I'm a Flair mark, but Mm -hmm. I I think Flair's promos are still the gold standard and, and uh, that's not to say that there weren't other phenomenal ones. One of the other great talkers of all time was Dusty Rhodes. And I think you could argue, and and this is really reaching, but you have to understand the way wrestling works in my worldview. There might not be a horseman without Dusty Rhodes, because in order for you to have a really over baby face, you've got to have an over heel and vice versa. And Dusty Rhodes needed a group, a band of misfits to, uh, to take him to task and for him to you know, Lex Luthor needs Superman and right. Dusty Rhodes was positioning himself as Superman. And I think you could argue that the horsemen may or may not have been, uh, put together and kept together and pushed the way they were in an effort to support Dusty Rhodes, baby face efforts. Would you agree with that?
1: Yeah. And it, it all kind of started back around this time around starcade to gathering with the breaking of the foot. And the false finish in the ring and all of them jumping in the ring to get Dusty because if you listen to the promos back then, they all talked about Dusty Rhodes. They talked about their match, but they also talked about making sure that Flair was the world champion and Dusty Rhodes be damned. Uh, listen, rambling on to me was great. There was there was sometimes you would see Flair on these promos say, don't wrap me up. I've got more to say. Yeah. Okay. Let him talk. The reason you watch World Championship Wrestling in the '80s was the promos. It wasn't because of the matches. No, they were job matches. You watched the guys to talk. That's how they got over, and that's why Flair, the Horseman, and Dusty were some of the greatest. Maybe the greatest.
0: Um, so I'm not. I'm not trying to uh, disparage anyone when I'm saying that. But yeah. in your opinion, what was the Four Horsemen? You know, just their overall purpose. To make Dusty Roads look good. Uh
1: now, here's what I mean. A, that's that's I, a tough question, man. I, I, I I'm not
0: saying that to to disparage anything, but I am saying you don't need a band you know a guy can't overcome these insurmountable odds and and become the hero unless, you know, they really are insurmountable odds. So one on four or three on one or two on one or if a guy is trying to beat up a gang, I mean, this is very simplistic, basic storytelling to me, but the horsemen were kind of the foil for dusty roads. And we, we love them as, as wrestling fans and we can appreciate that. But a lot of people also like the bad guys in movies too. And you're st- they're still there to be the foil for the baby face. And, and in hindsight, it seems like, okay, well he's got to have somebody to overcome it's the horseman, especially if you're trying to push him as like the primary guy in the WWF, of course, you know, Hogan is trying to overcome the Heenan family. Mm -hmm. Well, I'm not comparing the horseman and the Heenan family, but I am saying the, the, the idea is, is similar in that you've got a gang of guys, a gang of bad guys with one superhero baby face.
1: Well, it was a gang of guys also that, that ganged up on Magnum TA at the time, and, and Dusty envisioned himself, right or wrong, and we brought this up earlier, as the number one babyface star for the company. Well, Babyface star for the company. And Magnum was in that with him.
0: The, exactly. That's what I was going to say is Magnum, if Dusty was driving the bike, uh, the sidecar was Magnum TA. Right. I mean, that was right. Batman and Robin and the way they were trying right. to position themselves. So. Uh, anyway, just food for thought. Would the horsemen have existed if Babyface Dusty Rhodes didn't need someone to overcome? Uh, Would the
1: horsemen existed if Dusty wasn't the booker?
0: There you go. The, uh, I think these are valid questions. Now, that's not to say that these guys wouldn't have been successful on their own. They were successful before the four horsemen, and you could argue they were successful without the four horsemen. But when they're attacking Dusty in the parking lot, when they're putting hard times on him in the cage with his broken ankle, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, Uh, I mean, even you get down to, uh, you know, Tully in the cage with Dusty with, um, you know, Tully down the side of Dusty's head. I mean, he's trying to overcome these dastardly horsemen. The cage existed to keep the other horsemen out. I mean, that's what it was really all about. Um, Let's talk a little bit about Magnum TA because you brought him up. And I feel like Magnum TA is somebody who... History is maybe overlooked, similar to Tully Blanchard. Obviously, what they have in common is their careers were shorter than a lot of the other people we've discussed today. But the reason they were shorter is greatly different. Do you think Magnum TA was in line to become the heavyweight champion at one point? It certainly feels like they were trying to groom him to be the Southern answer to Hulk Hogan.
1: Uh, there was no question about that. He was. Uh, he had one of the greatest uh, interviews out there. And it was a different interview than a Ric Flair or a Dusty Rhodes. Those were a a very entertaining, very, at times, fun-loving interview that could get serious. Magnum's interview was serious from the beginning. And you, Nikita Koloff, come over here from Russia, have the audacity to come out here on American television and put down all our athletes say you're superior just because you say so. Well, you have never proved anything to me. Not with a chain, not with the help of Uncle Ivan, not with the help of Baron Von Reschke. I still stand here, and I'm still fired up, and I'll stay that way until I put you down. They say it's got to go four matches. Well, I predict this. I predict after the first one, there won't be enough of you left to continue. You'll have to forfeit all the rest up to me. He really took it seriously. Another point that I've brought up many times Watch Magnum TA and the old local promos, if you can ever find them, and they're on YouTube. When I would call Magnum TA in, or even I saw an interview on an old WCW Saturday night, when he walked in, he stared right at the camera. He didn't look at me. He didn't look off. He didn't look at the fans like Flair would do sometimes and Dusty would do sometimes. He wouldn't play off the fans. He would look at the camera with a serious look and a pretty serious rap. Almost, I'm not going to say as, as good as Jake the Snake, but almost as serious as Jake the Snake was uh, in his prime in doing promos. One of the greatest uh, talkers of all time. Uh, so, yeah, he had the look that belly to belly suplex was something no one else did. Uh, he The fans loved him and uh, he had success with Watts. And there was no question he was going to be at least have a run with Flair and be the world heavyweight champion at one time.
0: Yeah, it's tragic that it happened the way it did. And if you haven't already and you're listening to this, you you owe it to yourself to go check out some old Magnum TA matches. His I Quit match with Tully Blanchard is still probably the gold standard for I Quit matches. Go out of your way to see that one. I should mention that Dusty Rhodes had a lot of history with both Ole Anderson and Ric Flair going back to the mid-70s in both Georgia Championship Wrestling and the Mid-Atlantic Territory. Uh, But the reason we're talking about Magnum TA here is in 1985, Dusty had taken a young Magnum TA and made him his protege and they formed America's team. And the mm-hmm. two of these guys are going to have various battles, whether it's singles or tag matches with the entire combination of the horsemen, Flair, Ole, Arn, Tully, the whole deal. Um, you know, let's talk a little bit about JJ Dillon because JJ Dillon is somebody who, uh, had a lot of roles in Jim Crockett promotions and was of course positioned here as the manager or the leader of the four horsemen, the kind of mastermind behind the whole thing. Uh, But again, I don't think he's a guy that a lot of younger fans maybe really understand or appreciate what his contributions were. Catch everybody up to the importance of J.J. Dillon as a member of the horsemen.
1: I thought J.J. was, well, when I think of J.J. uh, Conrad, I think of the guy backstage and I think the organized guy backstage who kind of put everything together. Dusty was the creative mind uh, and had all these great ideas, but it was J.J. that made sure that they were on paper and they were concise and they were moving forward and they were organized. Uh, J.J.'s presence at ringside, he was always serious. He wasn't as verbose as a uh, Jim Cornette and wasn't as active as a Jim Cornette, but he was kind of the serious guy of all these guys talking, and he kind of – as he did backstage – Kind of was the the center point glue for what they were doing. I mean, there were not when you think of the horsemen. Take a look at the cover of Dick Bourne's book. There are two horsemen on one side, two horsemen on the other, and who's in the middle? It's J.J. Dillon. So he was kind of the center point that that held everything together, and uh, he came across as as he was a very intelligent guy, and even though he didn't wrestle, and he did wrestle some, I know. But at that time, he didn't wrestle much. Uh, he was the, the guy that held them together.
0: Well, and uh, before they could be held together, they had to get together. And according to the brand-new Horseman book, which is available at uh Dick Bourne writes that perhaps the earliest indication that these wrestlers were starting to come together as a group is when Tully Blanchard comes to the aid of Ole and Arn Anderson in breaking Sam Houston's arm. And that happens in August of eighty five. Uh, David Crockett would refer to this on air as the unholy Alliance. Uh, did you see the progression of these heels coming together, uh, already? Do you remember seeing that in August of 85, uh, or was it only Rhodes who thought, Hey, maybe we're, we're putting something together.
1: No, I think they, uh, I, you could see them coming together. I, and, and I think dusty was behind all of that, but it, it was pretty apparent that they were kind of forming an Alliance, you know, heels being heels, heels sticking together, uh, uh, Rick Flair used to always say, uh, the thing a heel needs to do is to run with his own kind, be in a gang. And then when he got beat, lie the hell about, uh, lie about it, uh, and then go forward. Uh, so, uh, yeah, you could see them coming together, uh, back then. Let's talk a little bit
0: about Sam Houston. I don't know when we'll talk about him again. Um, what was his upside? Did you think that he had more potential than what we ultimately got to see? Uh, did he fall out of favor? Why didn't Sam Houston go on to greater heights in the territory?
1: Uh because he fell in love with Baby Doll. I was hoping you would just tell the
0: truth there. Thank you, sir. Yeah. Uh
1: he fell in love with Baby Doll and they uh got together and that pissed Dusty off. And I think that's the truth. And that's my thinking, and I think most people would agree with that.
0: You don't think it was necessarily that Dusty was jealous. He just thought it was bad for business or both?
1: Exactly. Yeah, he thought it was bad for business. Um, And there may have been a twinge of jealousy in there. I, don't, I, don't, I can't speak for Dusty, uh, but he, I think he thought it was bad for business. But listen, you bring a girl in that business who looks the way she looks and is attractive with all a bunch of guys, eventually something's going to happen, you would think.
0: You, you just said something there that I don't think I'd ever heard before. Did Dusty uh, – Dilly dally.
1: Not that I know of.
0: I said, never heard that. So uh, yeah. the way you kind of alluded there, I
1: thought, wow, I never no. heard this before. So no, no, I don't think he did. So when you're saying, if he, j- if he did, if he did, if he did dilly dally, he k it from everybody, including me. Yeah. You know, a lot of the guys didn't it. <laughs> I. <yeah. laughs>
0: That's the understatement of the entire series that we've done. A lot of guys didn't k-fave it.
1: No, they just, they just fucked as many girls as they could. Uh, I've been told
0: that, uh, once upon a time Flair would throw parties at his house yeah. and the boys had different days for this is a girlfriend day or this is a wife day. Oh, okay.
1: I, now I haven't heard that, but that, that doesn't surprise me. Flair, did, just
0: like, Flair didn't Flair was, tell me that by the way, just okay. throwing that out there.
1: It's, look, they, these guys were just like rock and roll stars, right? Right, right, right. Yeah. So, but going back to your original question, did Dusty Dilly Dally? No, he did not. Uh, and uh, he was, he removed himself from all that. And I think that's, you know, I, I think that's why he was so upset about, to me, that's why he was so upset about Sam and Baby Doll, was because he removed himself from it and he thought maybe that she should as well and Sam should as well. But it was It probably, well, listen. Back then, it's different than it is now because the business is out of the open now. But it just wasn't good for business back then.
0: So uh, Dick Bourne wrote in his book that the cage in Atlanta is kind of the jumping off point. He says, this is the key event that started the wheels in motion for the infamous night in late September when Flair turned his back on roads in the steel cage in Atlanta. The first pieces of that developed when Dusty offered aid to Flair in his battle with the Russians. Flair warned Dusty at that point, stay out of his business, but Rhodes failed to heed that warning. And on September 29th, 1985 at the Omni in Atlanta, he paid for it. Uh, so let's set the stage here for one of the greatest angles or moments, maybe heel turns in the history of uh, our great sport. Uh, Flair and Dusty are feuding and the tenor of their feud is based on who was better. And these guys are going back and forth with promos pretty regularly here. Uh, and they had even exchanged the NWA world title a couple of times by this point, uh, Flair at this point is feuding with the baby faces, but also the heels like Ivan and Nikita, as well as Crusher Khrushchev. Uh, so Flair is not really a heel here, but he's not really a baby face, but we all know Flair was better as a heel, at least in my opinion. But is it fair to say based on his feud with the Russians that he was gaining popularity as a face at the time?
1: Yes. As the world heavyweight champion, you had to challenge everybody as a guy who, you know, even Koloff or even, uh, you know, Nikita, who was a super heel back then and, and the road warriors who were super baby faces back then. And uh, but Flair could not deny that he was gaining in popularity as a baby face without even trying because you liked his shit. He could be dirty and you liked his shit. So he was gaining popularity as a face, not because he was doing promos on heels, just because he was Ric Flair. He was great as a heel. I mean, I'm talking about the uh, the late '70s when I started watching. He was tremendous as a heel. And then as time wore on, you, you, he had been there so much, and he had done his rap was so good. You he you loved it. You absolutely loved it. And uh, so he became a heel, a babyface probably without even trying to be one. Makes sense.
0: It does. It feels kind of weird to talk about now, but yeah. we want to try to tell the truth here and be honest. And over the years, Flair and Dusty have had kind of an on again, off again relationship. Um, some days they got along great. Some days they were cutting promos in real life on each other. They ended, you know, when, when Dusty passed away, they were on really good terms and they had kind of patched things up and just let it all be water under the bridge. But
1: there was Can I some- say something about that? Please do. All right. The horsemen were always were very vocal to me and upset about Dusty continuing to put himself over. Tully being the one that was most vocal. Uh, but they knew they were making money. So they rode the train as long as it would go. And I always remembered, even though there was – and I don't know if this was bullshit or if this was guys being really guys. I always remember Flair and Dusty getting on a plane together like a private plane. You know, the Crockett's had the private planes. Right. After working a match and hugging each other and thanking each other for the match. Tully would do the same thing with Dusty. Arn, all of them, after the match was over, would always hug each other and say great match and appreciate what the other ones did. So, they may have bitched about it, and there may have been some heat out there. But I think in 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 effect, they were all teammates, and they all loved each other for that for that purpose. The fact that Dusty continued to put himself over got a lot of heat with people. But you know what? Uh, we were making money back then. So what the hell?
0: Let me freestyle. You know, the reason that where I was going with this was. There's lots of, you know, conspiracy theories in wrestling as you know. No, oh, but and, and one of the conspiracies was hey, the, Flair was gaining such popularity as a babyface and Dusty wanted to keep himself as the prime baby babyface position. So let's turn Flair so they're not competing for the top babyface spot and instead Dusty can work with Flair as a top heel. Yeah. Um what say you is that just dusty being a smart booker as uh, wearing a booker hat or is that dusty the wrestler protecting the spot that's a combination
1: of both well that's fair i mean, I, I mean it is uh, you know dusty had it dusty had a, a big ego uh but dusty man could could talk uh and could do some things that were wonderful and uh, and had the book the old the old adage back then was guys who had the book would always put themselves in the top spot because they knew in their mind what they wanted and it was better for them to do it than to tell someone else how to do it. Uh, that was part of Dusty's thinking back then, uh, right or wrong. But uh, I think it's yeah, I think it's a combination of both. It's a combination of Dusty wanting to be the top babyface and Dusty knowing that if he's going to have, as the top babyface, if you're going to have someone good to work with, It would have to be Ric Flair because Flair could work and Flair in the ring could make guys who couldn't work as well as him look good. Hell, I saw, I saw matches with Ric Flair and the junkyard dog. And this is, you know, later on in the early nineties and Flair did the best he could with JYD, who, as we all know, was, was not a good worker, but Flair made him look like something, uh, and Dusty knew that. So I think Dusty wanted to get somebody in the ring with him that could work and had a great presence. And that's why he always paired himself with Flair. Not always, but many times did.
0: Straight from the uh, new horseman book, Flair had just defeated Nikita Koloff inside a steel cage to successfully defend the NWA world championship. Ivan Koloff had entered the cage and both of the Russians were ganging up on Flair. Flair. Suddenly, Rhodes entered the cage to a huge ovation to help Flair once again, and he cleared the ring of the Russians. Flair seemed furious. Moments later, the Andersons entered the cage and attacked Rhodes. If fans thought for a moment that Flair might return the favor and lend a hand to Dusty, they soon learned otherwise. The Andersons locked the cage door and held Rhodes down to the mat as Flair came off the top rope on his leg, breaking his ankle. The babyface locker room emptied as Magnum T A, Ricky Morton, Robert Gibson, and Terry Taylor all tried to scale the cage walls, but the Andersons kept knocking them down. The Omni crowd began to riot. With that crazy scene in the Omni, the seeds were sown for what would become the battle of the Horsemen versus Dusty Rhodes for the next several years. Um, you were there. What was it? Yeah. Not, what was it like that night in the Omni? This is one of those iconic scenes that we see as fans in twenty seventeen and think. Boy, it'll never be like
1: that again. Yeah, it was chaos. And I remember Arn saying afterwards uh, that he was concerned for his safety leaving the the ring that night. Uh, We had uh, one of our hot spots, the Omni, just like Greensboro, uh, and one of the great angles. And the fact that they were in the steel cage and nobody could get in to help him out even made the situation even more urgent. Uh, I I remember that being legitimate heat legitimate heat that you'll never see again
0: well uh that legitimate heat you know would would build for a lot um and and a long time because this would be one of the all-time iconic feuds and as we said would go for years and years so soon after this uh massacre in the cage uh tully blanchard becomes closely aligned with the anderson's and he had spent the first half of 85 battling Rhodes over the tv title and then the second half with magnum ta over the u.s title uh, now there's four of them and baby doll is at tully's side and we would begin to see um these guys appear on each other's interviews and this is the first time we'd really kind of seen this uh tully began teaming regularly with the anderson's in some six t- six man tag matches across the country as well uh how friendly were these guys behind the scenes during this time was there some sort of Formal introduction as to, hey, we're going to start pairing you guys together, or did it just kind of organically happen, to the best of your recollection?
1: I it organically happened. You, D- Dusty had a pretty good idea on what could end a show and what would get the fans talking. And you'll notice on some of these shows back then, Flair came out more than once, and Tully would come out more than once, and then they would come out together. A- and there was a lot of impromptu those guys joining each other uh, at the set together. As we formatted the show out, there were a lot of times that I didn't see Tully, Rick, and Arn together. I just saw them that maybe Tully was going to come out. But Flair and Arn would join him because in the back, they were probably talking to Dusty about this, and they would come up with things on the fly.
0: How uh, friendly were these guys behind the scenes? Is this, you know, before they're really officially formed here, Were they already behind-the-scenes traveling buddies? I mean, we hear a lot of times that, you know, even today, guys ride together. Um, Were these guys kind of riding buddies? Did they party together? What was that dynamic like?
1: Ric Flair, Oli, uh, and Tully Blanchard, and Arn Anderson, and JJ, and (laughs) sometimes me when I was on the road, traveled together. Not saying I'm a horseman.
0: Even before they were originally formed as the Horsemen, they were traveling buddies.
1: Yes. Okay. Well, Oli, there you go. Oli, Oli did not travel with them. I see. Oli had a completely different lifestyle, a completely old school way of doing things, and I think Oli traveled on his own. Uh, he didn't want to get involved in any of that. Uh, so uh, well, those guys traveled together, and he was a separate. So they got along, and, and Oli got along with him. But there was a bit, there was there was quite a separation between Oli and the rest of the guys.
0: Do you have any good uh, examples or stories you can share with us about how that dynamic worked with Oli kind of being on his own?
1: I just know Ole at a lot of times would say, as as Flair would do his stuff and do his interviews, and we would be on the road. I remember Oli saying, "I'm not getting involved in that shit at all." He would tell me that Oli and I had Oli was a great conversationalist. You could sit down and talk to Oli Anderson for hours about anything. He loved to talk about money. <laughs> he loved to talk about the stock market, uh, but he could sit down and talk to him for hours about anything. But when you talked about flair and those guys, it's, he didn't never create, never criticized what they did on camera within the ring. But he would always like, I'm not doing that shit as far as going on the road with them and drinking and partying. So he was very much against that and very opposed to it. And I guess maybe he didn't appreciate it. So he didn't party. Did he dilly-dally? No. If he did, that was if, – if he did,
0: that was ultra kayfabe. So Arne Arne didn't like or Ole didn't like uh alcohol or women and he was a horseman. It's no wonder they kicked his ass out.
1: Yeah, I uh, know. <laughs> he, he he may have secretly liked both. Uh but uh it I mean only just showed up, right? I mean, we would be around and then Ole would show up not being with the other guys. There may have been sometimes because of need and because of uh just at the right time that Oli would hop into a car and go to a town with him. But Oli never went to the bar. Oli, uh, never went out to dinner. And I don't know why he didn't, because Flair always picked up the tab and Oli was so fucking tight that he will love that.
0: Well, i tell you what, you could tell Oli was tight because he used to wear those t-shirts on TV. that were just iron yeah. on letters. So my favorite was the one that said, damn, I am good. I'm a big fan of that one.
1: Uh, and he wore those, wore those burgundy trunks and those boots with the gold stripes on it that he wore from the 60s, I guess. Same ones.
0: So I was trying to transition to sell you some T-shirts there, and you had to go off on a tangent talking about boots and trunks. Okay. Uh, and he'll go off on a tangent for you when you order a shirt from ProWrestlingTees.com forward slash WHW. And we have got some silliness up there for you. Parker's Jump Rope Academy and the Hot Tag shirt remain my two favorites. But, Tony, I don't even know that I told you this, but I've actually got I've actually got our friends over at ProWrestlingTees working on some new shirts. Did I tell you this? Mm, you did not tell me this, Conrad, but I want to hear it. Well, i tell you what. It's going to be a surprise for you. You need to cruise okay. on over to ProWrestlingTees.com. Forward slash WHW. We've got some fun shirts coming. Uh, we have alluded to for the last several weeks that towards the end, WCW felt like a coffin on roller skates. It would not be a surprise to me if there was a coffin on roller skates shirt soon enough. Just last week, we talked about the Greed 2001 pay-per-view, and we kind of freestyled that uh, maybe we needed a flare-headed first shirt. It would not mm-hmm. surprise me if that one made its way to the store. And last but certainly not least, we've got to keep the legend of Klondike Bill going. Uh, Bill's Glass Bottom Boat Ride Tours. That <laughs> shirt is coming your way soon. All of this and more at ProWrestlingTees.com forward slash WHW. And be sure to pick one of these up in time to come see us on July 9th. Uh, you're going to see an extra big smile from Tony Schiavone when you do that. And you're actually going to put some smiles on faces because when you pick up a shirt here, you actually give him a call, right, Tony?
1: I give you a call. I've talked to most everybody. I think uh, the ones who have bought T-shirts uh, here in the month of June, I have not talked to yet. I did talk, and I do want to bring this up. I did talk to a gentleman, uh, uh, and I can't name everybody, obviously, but I talked to James Morrow of Kansas this past week. James bought six, count them, six shirts. Wow. Uh, and he had me on speakerphone with he and his friend. Who are watching TV and he's in and he's home, and I appreciate that. I appreciate Norwich Arca, who has probably bought about uh, seven or eight shirts by now. I just want to bring up some of these. I haven't been able to call uh, the people who are overseas as of yet. I called one guy, but we've had a guy from Germany buy a shirt. Uh, we've had a couple of guys from Australia, a number of guys from England buy a shirt, and I haven't been able to make those calls yet, but I will uh, give everybody a call. I enjoy talking to everybody. It's good for my ego, obviously, because they, they all say very nice things to me. But it, it makes me think when I talk to these people that you know back then, Conrad, the shit that they we were doing was was pretty damn good. Yeah. Uh, and so I I love I really and, and some of the people don't know what to say when I'm talking and you know uh, some of them won't shut up, which is good. Uh, I just enjoyed, and they all say, you know, I, I know you can't spend much time with me. Yeah, I can spend time with you. Keep talking. This is what it's all about: being able to connect with the fans on a one-to-one basis that we never really had a chance to do back then. So, uh, I appreciate all of that. Uh, the uh, The wedding for my daughter that's coming up in March is uh, moving forward as far as me paying for that, and the fans and you, Conrad, are all a big and Court Bauer all a big part of that. So, it's been great. Buy a t shirt. I saw it when we were at the Legends of the Ring last week in Monroe. A guy had a Blockmaster T-shirt on, uh, and he walked in front of Shockmaster with that. And I saw Shockmaster look at that and stare at it as to say, "What the hell is that?" Uh, but uh, I appreciate all of that. You wouldn't, be, you would, you probably wouldn't be surprised that I hear from a lot of people everywhere who have listened to this podcast and then say, "I'm buying a shirt, damn it," and I say, "Then damn it." you're going to buy a shirt, wear it with pride. Okay. If there's a shirt that says slap dick on it, walk in your favorite restaurant with that shirt that says slap dick. That'll be a, certainly a conversation piece.
0: Well, and there was no bigger conversation piece in the mid eighties than the four horsemen and the formation. And you actually get credit for the name, the four horsemen in the brand new four horsemen book. Uh, let's kind of set the stage. Dick would write, it was in early October that Arn Anderson began talking about the four of them as a unit, referring to them as the elite group of professional wrestling. It's believed that at some point around the same time, Arn first coined the phrase, the four horsemen, to describe the group. Not since the four horsemen of the apocalypse have so few wreaked so much havoc on so many. Uh, and that's Arn's quote. So as far as the initial formation of the horsemen, uh, the fact that they get along, they're doing promos together on the TBS show, It feels like a lot of this just happens organically, but now it's definitely the plan. Uh, This promo from Arn Anderson uh, is a little bit of a mystery as to when it was first mentioned, Uh, but Dick believes that it happened during a local promo on one of the Crockett syndicator programs. And we've actually got a clip, which is the first time you think you remember it being on TBS that we're going to play on the show, right, Tony?
1: Yeah, that's right. Uh, And Dick put this in his book that it happened in uh, leading up to the gathering, in 1985, uh, on a WCW Saturday Night, which was the first time it was mentioned there. But uh, again, as you said, and as fans I think realized by now, there were a a whole lot of interviews done other than what they saw on TBS. Whole lot of local promos done. Right. With uh, and I mean we we would spend literally all day Wednesday or Thursday, normally Wednesdays, doing interviews all day for all these different markets. Uh, and that's when I think. Well, not I think. That's when the. That's when Arn Anderson and Ric Flair and Tully Blanchard and and again Ole wasn't there that much, if at all. That's when they developed this closeness, and that's when the Horsemen w- were developed. Um, Arn Anderson
0: confirms uh, this theory that it happened on one of the local Crockett syndicated programs, and he says. It was to, it was Tony Schiavone who actually validated the whole thing. He looked at me after the promo was over and said, I think you just named yourself and that led to us to start referring to ourselves as the four horsemen. Um, I've seen Arn tell this story and he says it was you, uh, who yeah. kind of said, Hey, that's your new name. Um, do you remember this particular moment in time or this being a discussion after that by accident? Arn had let some gold fall out of his mouth. You recognized
1: it, and the four horsemen was a thing. I, I remember it very clearly. I remember because uh, it goes back to what I was saying earlier in this in this uh, podcast. Arn and I were very friendly and, and very close, uh, and talked a lot about different things. And I remember exactly saying that. I don't know how the wording was, but I remember saying that. You know, Arn, you just named you guys. That's the four horsemen's perfect for you guys. Uh, so I remember saying that for Arne to, uh, say that I validated or was a part of it. Uh, it's probably true. And to be honest with you, I'm, I'm honored beyond words, honored that my name is associated with that.
0: If you had had uh, if you would have named this group yourself and it wouldn't have just been recognizing what Arne said, um, what would you have named the four horsemen?
1: Bunch of fucking big mouth drunks. Slapdick army. <laughs> I used to kid them all the time because there was a lot of drinking going on. Uh, and I used to and and I was a part of that, too, uh, back in the 80s.
0: I mean, you were throwing up in bathtubs. You shared. The yeah, I was. Before. And yeah.
1: I was getting locked out of the house. Uh, there was a lot of drinking going on. And I remember saying that that I had one of the hardest jobs in the whole world, you motherfuckers. Yeah, why is that? Because I got to put over a bunch of slap ass drunks as athletes every Saturday night, and we would all laugh. And they and that was just me being trying to be funny. They were great athletes and great performers, uh, but we were all friends. I you know listen, Tony Schiavone grew up in Virginia, a redneck fat ass watching Ric Flair and the and uh, Arnie Anderson. Perform and Dusty Roads perform And now he was traveling with these guys And holding the microphone for these guys Shit man, that's a big deal That is a big deal in my life
0: When do you remember The fans catching on To the Four Horsemen and it becoming a thing uh,
1: Around The Great American Bash time of 86 When we went on Tour uh, Arn Anderson first mentioned it uh, On TBS In 1985 leading up to uh, Stark 85 The Gathering, and then Tully Blanchard uh, in December, I think the first part of December, came out, did an interview, did two interviews uh, after he lost the I Quit match. Uh, he came out and did one interview with a T-shirt on, then he came out dressed, out, dressed up a little bit in the second interview, and that's when he referred to Arn Anderson. He said, Arn Anderson talking about the horseman and Tully put the four fingers up, and that was the first time that we had seen four fingers up on TBS and he put them up not to, to signal the four horsemen, but he put them up to say, you know, he grabbed one finger and say, Ric Flair, myself, grabbing another finger and just kind of counting down on his hand. And that's the first time we saw the four horsemen up. And of course we had the great American bash of 86 was a tremendous summer for all of us. And that's where it kind of got solidified.
0: Um, Do you remember anybody in the back being against the idea of the horseman, whether it was a baby face who didn't want to get beat up by a gang, or it was a heel who felt like he was going to be bumped down the card or just wanted in?
1: No, I don't remember that at all. That didn't happen. If it did, uh, it didn't happen around me. Look again, everybody was making money, uh, and Around that time, what was helping us make money, and we cannot deny it here, what was helping us make money was the Midnight Express and the Rock and Roll Express, too. Uh, everybody was making money because of big houses, and everybody got uh, paid on payoffs back then. And the big houses were drawn because of the Horsemen, because of Dusty, Magnum, because of the Midnight Express, because of the Rock and Roll Express. And I I should name some others. I know I'm gonna get some people pissed off. I don't throw any others in there but they were all, I think, happy that they were along for the ride.
0: Uh, Overall, is this the highlight of your wrestling memory, this formation of the Four Horsemen?
1: Yeah. To me, uh, this is the the greatest incarnation of it. Uh, Only because I was there for the beginning?
0: No, I I don't mean your favorite incarnation of the Horsemen. I mean as far as your favorite wrestling memory. Like I know... don't tell me about Big Boss Man in the fucking cage, but I'm talking about in Jim Crockett you promotions.
1: You don't like that, huh?
0: Well, no, it's just everybody is so tired of you sucking on Vince McMahon here, and they just I'm... want you to just say that the Crockett stuff was better. Um, so just lie to us for a minute and tell us that the formation of the Four Horsemen is one of your greatest memories in wrestling, and then we'll move on.
1: Yeah, it was. <laughs> it No, no, it was because I'm there.
0: Right, yeah, you're a part of don't, it. You're holding the mic. Uh, yeah. This is happening I'm all around mic. you.
1: Yeah, yeah, uh, I am there. I'm in the middle of it, and every time there is a, a snapshot of a flare promo on TBS, there I am holding the microphone. I, I am there. So, uh, again, I, I said it earlier. I'm, I'm damn proud of it. So, yeah, it was it was the greatest time for me, uh, and it was a time that I enjoyed running with those guys, and I shouldn't have. Uh, and, uh, it, it was, it was the greatest time for us in 86 was one of our greatest times because of the great American bash. And I went to all the cities, the great American bash, uh, and, uh, even though, and we taped some of the stuff, but I was there to all of them, uh, and, uh, you know, welcome the fans and it was just, uh, it was a great time. And I was in the midst of it.
0: Let's skip forward to StarK 85, the gathering, uh, yeah. the biggest pay-per-view or the biggest show you guys had ever ran at that point. Um, and you've said before that you want the fans to leave happy at a pay-per-view. Mm. Uh, and even though the horsemen are running roughshod, the babyfaces get the win here. Uh, the Rhodes win was a payoff for the angle earlier in Atlanta in the cage match. Then we had the I quit match, uh, that we'll talk about in long form at some point, but real quick. Uh, what was the environment like that night in Greensboro in '85?
1: Uh, I think I was in was that I was in Atlanta. I think There was that a, a show where half was in Atlanta and half was in Greensboro.
0: That's right. Half is Greensboro yeah. and half is the Omni. So you weren't in the yeah. Greensboro spot. You were at the Omni when Dusty and Flair had right. their singles match. Um, right. Talk about the finish of that because looking back, it, it's kind of been beat up a little bit.
1: Well, it should be. It's a terrible finish. Uh, It was one of those finishes where uh, the fans leave thinking that Dusty is the champion, one, two, three. And then we come back on TV, and the belt's taken away from him. Uh, They had David Crockett and I kind of batter back and forth about arguing about, you know, well, he pinned him. He pinned him, and I said, yeah, but he doesn't have the belt. And so the fans who tuned in thinking that Dusty was the champion – wasn't really the champion. We brought uh, Tommy Young out, uh, the referee. We interviewed him. I thought Tommy did a very good job of talking about it. We showed the replay that when Tommy looked up and he saw Arn Anderson come in the ring, he immediately asked for the bell because he wanted to protect Dusty, who had a broken foot, didn't want that to happen. He called for the bell to disqualify Flair, and that was the DQ. But he was still on the floor. He He got hit again, I think, and then Dusty pinned him one, two, three, and left for the belt. So the fans left happy, which is what we wanted, but then you know, we talk about screw job finishes, I think that was one of the biggest ones ever. I I think for them to tune in the next day and say, "Wait, wait, He didn't win the title? What the hell are they doing?" Right. I, I thought I thought it was wrong.
0: Was that Dusty's idea?
1: Yeah, it was Dusty's idea.
0: Is that what people would refer to as the Dusty finish? And do you no, think I, that that's fair to call it
1: that? No, it's not fair to call it that. There's been a lot of screw job finishes in wrestling that Dusty didn't do. Uh, in an it's, angle, it's just it's just trying to it's it's an attempt to further a storyline. That's what it is, uh, and you can give an opinion to it all you want and say, "Well, it's a screw job finish." But then you can stop and you say, "Wait a minute! If Dusty had this massive ego and he wanted to be the champion, why didn't he win the title that night?" Because Dusty wanted to further the angle and move on down the road with it, and he thought. That would further the angle. That was his thought of furthering an angle, and in effect, it worked. It didn't work. Uh, some things work, and some things don't.
0: On worldwide in January, early January of '86, we see Tully break it off with Baby Doll. He actually slaps her on television. Mm. Um, oh. Buddy Lindell had been fired, and JJ quickly shifts from managing. Uh, buddy over now to Tully. So baby doll is out of Tully's corner. JJ is in. And of course, baby doll is now aligned with dusty, which we talked about a little earlier. Um, did Tully like having baby doll to the best of your recollection and did they not get along or was this simply dusty wanting
1: her on his side? Oh, I don't think, I don't think Tully liked having her with him. Right. Because I think Tully thought he could stand alone without a valet. But it was a good look. He couldn't deny that. Those two looked good together. Tully would come out in a robe, and she came out looking as, you know, as she could As only she could look. Uh, and, but he didn't like having her. But that was just Tully being Tully. I don't think it had anything to do with her. I think it just had a thing to do with him not thinking he needed a valet.
0: Uh, how do you think she did in Dusty's Corner?
1: I think she did OK. Uh, listen, Dusty overshadows everybody. Right. A guy like Dusty and a guy like Flair, even though they've had their valets in the past, never needed one because they would overshadow everybody. Uh, so she was better with Tully than she was with Dusty. She was a better heel than she was a babyface.
0: Around this same uh, time period, we see the horsemen surround the ring and they've got Magnum and Dusty trapped in the ring and they're surrounded. And it looks like the heels are finally going to, you know, give the good guys the what for when all of a sudden the road warriors appear at Dusty's side and help fend off the horsemen. Uh, This is notable because Hawk comes in the ring so emphatically that he accidentally trips and falls in the ring and then bounces back up. But as a fan, this was an incredible moment. The road warriors had been a huge star everywhere they'd been. And now they're here and they're coming to fend off the horseman. Um, so the road warriors coming in as a big deal, uh, and obviously they've been so over that, you know, if you're trying to be critical of dusty, you would say, oh, now he's putting himself with the road warriors, but I mean, it happened. So, yeah. uh, they're going to be cheered. So why not put them, you know, against right. the top heel act, which is the horseman. So. People just complain. Uh, tell me about the road warriors here. What did you think of this angle? How are they to deal with? Do you have any memorable road warrior stories here from this era?
1: Well, yeah, I do. I uh, Mike Hegstrand, uh, God rest his soul, was one of the true great guys in the business. One of the best. And what made it so great was that I, I knew this, and we all knew it. And listen, Joe Laurinaitis was a great guy, too. They were both sensational, nice guys. And that's what made it so great because they were such badasses on the air. Uh, and they were such... I mean, some of the things that they said and the way they... Uh, you know, they, they they were the... perfected the... were the, I guess the, the start of the big-ass bad, bad guys screaming on the air because that's what they did. They screamed. And as we know, a lot of the big badasses down the road, started screaming their promos as well. Um, I love Mike. Uh, Mike brought me uh, a weaseled slapper T-shirt around this time that people ask, uh, and he handed it to me. People ask if I still have it, which I don't. And that's how stupid I am. I should have that thing. Uh, they went to Japan, and Mike bought me a watch, a real nice, expensive watch from Japan. Uh, and he did that because we were in Los Angeles at the forum one night and you mentioned Hawk coming in and tripping, right? And then bounce back up when the when it was time for Mike Hegstrand to perform, he was a completely, he was out of his freaking mind. He was a completely different animal, so to speak. And he would go in and just go nuts. So I'm uh, the ring announcer when we're on tour and this is, about the time the Road Warriors were well, the Road Warriors were with us. I can't remember what year, probably '86, and we went all over. We went to uh, we went to Albuquerque, went to L.A., uh, went to San Francisco, went to uh, Las Cruces, New Mexico, El Paso, and uh, they they brought me as a ring announcer. And so here came the Road Warriors with their music. And back then we could use Iron Man, and it was a great crowd at the L.A. Forum. And I'm standing in the ring, and of course, as they come in the ring, I'm going to move out of the way to let them take center stage. And I go over to a corner, which I think is a neutral corner, to get out of the way. That just so happened to be the same corner that the hawk, Mike Hegstrand, was going to walk up the turnbuckle, as he would do, and stand up on the turnbuckle and flex his muscles and stick his tongue out. Well, I was in that corner, and he was so into what he was doing, he didn't even know I was there. And he just came right up in that corner, pinned me in the corner, and walked up the corner. And the spikes, which were legitimate spikes, steel spikes on his shoulder pads, one gig me in the forehead and one gig me below the right eye. And uh, when I think about it, that was like three inches from putting my eye out, maybe two inches from putting my eye out. And, and it was – and. He jumped down and then realized what it was doing, and then out of the side of the mouth, he said, are you okay? And I said, yeah, I'm fine. And I was very proud of that moment because here I was. I, I had done a, a gig job for the Road Warriors, and I still made the announcement with blood coming down my face. Uh, and because of that, Mike Hegstrand bought me a watch uh, in, uh, from Japan to say he was sorry and thanks for putting him over. So, uh, yeah, so I did a blade job the hard way. For the road warriors in LA in 86, how many people can say that?
0: Well, probably a lot, but none of them are doing <laughs> podcasts today. So there you go. That's right. Um, a few days before that whole baby doll JJ angle, uh, aired on TV, they had a new year's Eve show, uh, or a new year's night show at the Omni and here Dusty would break Ole's leg. Uh, he's doing this to get revenge for his ankle injury, of course. And this leads Oli to be out of action for a few months. Um, why did Oli take the time off here? Do you remember?
1: Yeah, he needed his knee scoped. Well, there you go. Uh, Oli had a bad knee, and Oli was the type of guy. It happened on TBS one time. If you go back and take a look at the show, so let me say this. Uh, and I know what you're going to say. This is me blowing Vince. But let me say this. Take a weekend and go on the WWE Network. Click on Vault, click on WCW Saturday Night, start in 1985, and just binge on them one weekend and watch some of the great stuff that happened back then. When, when we first started in 85, all the way up to 89, I believe. And, of course, I was off the show by that time. That was our number one show, and a lot of great things happened. One thing that happened back then was Ole got hurt and fell out of the ring and couldn't stand up. And it was pretty apparent uh, that he had fallen out of the ring and he was hurt. Uh, he still worked that night in Columbus, Georgia, and he never missed a show because he was old school, number one, and number two, uh, back then, if he didn't work, he didn't get paid. So only with that, now I had a chance to take some time off because he had a bad knee, so he had his knee sculpted.
0: So in January of 1986, we see Arn go ahead and win the television title. Uh, He has an opportunity to do so because Dusty had to vacate the title uh, when he had his hard times put on him. Uh, When they injured the ankle, he had to go ahead and vacate it. They held the tournament. Arn comes out on the other side as the champ. Uh, But in February, Arn and Ole are stripped of their tag belts because Ole can't defend it. Uh, So at this point, um, we've got kind of uh, a lot of gold. Going through the hands of the horseman flair, of course, debuts the big gold belt in February of 86. And in March, Tully beats dusty for the national heavyweight championship. Um, Arne has done it all here in Jim Crockett promotions, but did you prefer Arn as a single or as a tag wrestler?
1: I preferred him as a single talker, but a tag team wrestler. Arn's greatest, you know, Arn became a member of the Brainbusters. Arn and 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 Tully were a great tag team. Arn and Larry Zbyszko were a great tag team, as the Enforcers. Arn uh, and and Oli were sensational. Uh, I liked Arn coming out talking by himself, but I liked Arn as a tag team wrestler. I guess maybe it's because I saw him most as a tag team wrestler. I'm not so sure.
0: Let's talk about what Ric Flair's doing next. He's going to start working a pretty memorable feud at the time with Ricky Morton, one half of the rock and roll express. Uh, they had phenomenal studio segments here inside the TBS studios. I, I want you to kind of uh, tell us some of your favorite memories of these Ricky Morton, Ric Flair studio interviews. Of course, they had a series of matches on the house shows that drew big houses and it was a hot feud for months. But the studio stuff really set it off, and you were there for
1: all that. Yeah, I was there for all of it. Uh, Ricky Morton had a great interview. Ric Flair had the Ric Flair interview, and Ric Flair, you know, he came out with the teeny bopper stuff and the training bras and all that stuff, you know, knocking on the fans of the Rock and Roll Express. And the Rock and Roll Express were brought in, as I remember Jimmy Crockett saying, to bring in 12-year-old girls. But, of course, they brought in all types of. You know, girls all ages that loved him. Even the older ladies loved him. Uh, Ricky Morton was was the face of those teeny boppers, and he was their hero. And Flair was knocking on that. And some of the great things that he gave me to give to Ricky Morton were memorable stuff. And uh, But as memorable as those things were, they weren't as memorable as the matches were because those matches were sensational. Because Ricky Morton was one of the and still is, will be remembered and I'm glad he's in the Hall of Fame, will be, remember, one of the greatest sellers of all time, along with one of the greatest, if not the greatest worker of all time.
0: Um, on the worldwide wrestling program that aired on June 7th, we would see Ric Flair defend his title against Dusty Rhodes in Spartanburg, South Carolina. It looks like Rhodes is about to win when all of a sudden Arn and Tully hit the ring and do a number. Uh, on dusty roads before the rock and roll express and Magnum TA make the save, and then all of a sudden Oli comes back and makes his return. Uh, and then we see the four horsemen celebrate their reunion, and Arn delivers one of the more memorable interviews ever. Uh, he closed it with, we're going to get rid of dusty roads. You bank on it, you go down and you can bet on it. I don't care. Help someone. I don't care where I don't know when all I know is it's going to be done. And right now we're going to do a little bit of celebrating because the four horsemen are back in business. And this is memorable because, at least in my world view, this is the first time all of the horsemen's put their hands up at the same time holding up the four fingers, and it right. became a horseman thing from the rest of the Crockett years and WCW. Uh, but it first happened here on June 7th. Uh, do you remember this
1: particular promo or angle or situation? Yeah, I do. Uh, I remember because I was... I was, and I'm still, this is really old school. I was always kind of against having a match like this on TV, but I, I think it all kind of worked out his way out because it was a it was a pretty decent angle and it helped solidify the four horsemen. Uh, let, let's be honest. Uh, we remember the four horsemen because Flair is the centerpiece, but let's not forget that Arn Anderson started naming the horsemen. Arn Anderson gave the great promos with the four fingers up. So he was the guy that, developed the four horsemen persona.
0: Right. Yeah. I mean, you can't argue that. Did you ever uh, get any heat or or any trouble for smiling and enjoying some of these interviews? Because these guys are supposed to be heels, but sometimes you can't help yourself. And when Flair's, you know, cutting a promo, you're grinning ear to ear, but David was guilty of this as well. Right? Um, Was there any discussion about that at the time? No, no, I never
1: got heat for that. Not at all. I, I think our, our commentary took care of that because, you know, we were really against them doing things. There was one time when Flair uh, picked up Sam Houston and uh, gave him a suplex on the floor at TBS. And we were both getting on Flair about that and how can the world champion act like this? And and then t- maybe two or three weeks later, he would bring out some girls and say something funny. And we would all smile. Yeah. Uh, So, no, I never got heat for smiling at all. In July of 86, the Great American Bash
0: in Greensboro, North Carolina, uh, we see Dusty Rhodes beat Flair for the world title. And this happens in his 13th of 14 scheduled title defenses in about a 30-day run for Flair. Uh, From July 1st to August 2nd, he would defend the belt against Ricky Morton, Road Warrior Hawk, Ron Garvin, Nikita Koloff, Robert Gibson, Road Warrior Animal, Wahoo McDaniel, and Dusty Rhodes. Uh, ultimately, Dusty is the guy who gets the win here. Uh, this Great American Bash Tour 1986, I'm sure we'll have a show long form on at some point in the future, but um, why? what was the thinking here in putting the belt on Dusty Rhodes? Why isn't Magnum TA ready for the spot here, in your opinion?
1: Yeah, well, that's a question I can't answer, but I, I remember looking at our Great American Bash Tour, And I remember seeing Dusty versus Flair in Greensboro and then Dusty versus Flair at the end of the tour at Atlanta Fulton County Stadium. And I remember, I don't know who I said it to, I think I may have said it to Sandy Scott. It was uh, Sandy and I were actually shared in office. The great Sandy Scott, may he rest in peace. I told Sandy, I said, I can see what's going to happen here. And he said, what? I said, Dusty's going to win the title in Greensboro and he's going to lose it in Atlanta. And that's exactly what happened. I was so proud of myself for figuring this thing out because I think Dusty wanted to win the title during the Great American Bash, but he ultimately wanted to give it back to Flair. So that's how it happened.
0: Two weeks later, Rhodes would lose the title after being weakened in an ambush by J.J. and Tully. Uh, And then two weeks after that, Baby Doll would turn on Dusty. And Dick Bourne wrote in the Four Horsemen book that it caused a near riot. What do you remember about this angle and baby doll turning? This feels like it would have been the one of many horseman turns, so to speak.
1: Yeah, I, uh, I actually, uh, it was a hell of an angle. It really was. I mean, the, the horseman had a way, and Dusty had a way of booking things that would give legitimate heat, that would cause, as you said, a near riot situation. He was good at that. And as much as we uh, we may have smiled at Ric Flair and all the funny things that he said, some of the dastardly shit that they did in the ring uh, and the turns that they made were good wrestling angle shit. It was.
0: Let's talk about one of the more, uh, it's worth mentioning, Baby Doll was gone a month later and was never back with the Horseman. In October of 86, we had maybe one of the more memorable Horseman television moments of all time. Uh, We see a camera in a car uh, with the horseman following Dusty um, to the offices of Jim Crockett. And they get out and they hold Dusty down. uh, And then they tie him down and then hit his arm with a foreign object like a tire iron. Mm -hmm. And you see Dusty yell, make it good. And there was lots of debate in the dirt sheets at the time as to whether or not that was supposed to be left in. And it was him as the kind of the director or was it him being, Hey, if you're going to shoot me, you better make it good. The old cowboy type. Mm-hmm. Um, and later we're shown the full attack complete with a black dot over the injury. So it's left to our imagination as to how bad the injury he sustained was. This doesn't necessarily hold up as well today, but at the time Man, this was some innovation, and one of the hottest angles in the business What do you remember about this one in particular?
1: uh the fans some of them still today remember the angle, and everybody, a, I
0: think everybody a, listening remembers this one
1: yeah it it had a an impact and and I was kind of behind the camera when all this went i mean, I wasn't running the camera, but I was on the other side watching it take place. Dusty's comment was made to. To be, what he wanted to say there was make it look good. In other words, if you're going to shoot me, shoot me good. It wasn't him being a director there at all. Uh, and it make you know again everybody knowing and all the smart marks thinking they know everything, knowing that he was the booker was trying to say, oh, he fucked up, and he shouldn't have said that. But that was what he was doing. You got me. You're going to do something. You better make it good because I'm going to come back and kick your ass. It's kind of like what he was going to say or what he meant at that time. Uh, it was a, it was for that time. It was a hell of an angle. It was a hell of an angle.
0: It was way different. I think that's what I liked most about it is, you know, it wasn't presented in the same way. You know, it was, it was shot kind of guerrilla style. It was uh revolutionary. Um, so the angle actually airs on October 18th, 1986. Um so it was taped before Magnum TA's terrible car accident, but it aired a week after. Um what would the plans have been at least from what you recall with Magnum TA and the Horseman? W- were they going to plan to put him with Flair at the next Starcade? at the next Great American Bash, or do, do, do you know any of those specifics?
1: He was going to be with Flair at the next Arcade. Uh, and there was the thought was that Magnum at that next Arcade was going to become the World Heavyweight Champion. Um, and, of course, it didn't happen like that. Nikita Koloff ended up wrestling Flair, taking Magnum's spot.
0: Now, all of this, you know, uh, injury to to Magnum changes everything because you've got current plans and future plans, and they really need Dusty to have an ally against the Horseman, and he gets one on October 19th, and one of the more shocking turns in wrestling history at the time, uh, Dusty and Magnum were supposed to face the Horseman in a steel cage in Charlotte on October 19th. Blanchard is injured, so J.J. is filling in, Uh, and Dusty is supposed to have a mystery partner since, of course, it can't be Magnum now. And in a dramatic moment, Dusty goes to the back and gets Nikita Koloff, who had never even sniffed at being a baby face before. And Nikita comes into the ring for a second, surveys the scene, and then starts attacking the horseman and the place explodes. Uh, how emotional was everyone this night on the heels of Magnum being injured? It's kind of like Dusty needs a hero and everybody's a little down after Magnum's injury uh, and now Nikita here, after being a long time heel, but he's a big jacked up dude. The place just goes nuts. Probably one of the more memorable nights in Crockett, wouldn't you agree?
1: Yeah, I was uh, standing beside a Jimmy Crockett when that happened, and Jimmy had tears—literally had tears—going uh, down his cheek, and he even looked at me and said, "Man, I just—I can't—I can't hide my emotions from this night." And it was a very special night. They always said the best time to turn a heel baby face is when he's a hot heel. Right. That was the old adage in the business. And that was Nikita Kolov was a hot heel. Now, not disputing what Dick put in the book because it's a great book, I don't remember Dusty going to the back and getting Nikita. What I remember is them attacking Dusty and Dusty having no ally and Nikita coming down for some unknown reason, sticking his head through the ropes. And as Dick said, surveying the situation, and then when he attacked, the fucking place went bananas, absolutely bananas. And, and I, I can remember that feeling that night of all of us being emotional, and I'll remember for the rest of my life. Uh, but for Dusty going to back at Nikita, I don't remember it happening that way, but I do remember Nikita coming in the cage. And he came in the cage, and they wanted him to look around as if you think he was going to also jump in on Dusty. Because they were hammering Dusty at that time, uh, and you know Dusty had no partner. And then when he looks around, all of a sudden he helps Dusty. That's when people go, people go nuts. And of course, you know that uh, that began the the turn of of Nikita to a babyface. And and as if you think about it now, uh, it was the only thing probably we could have done as far as having someone takes Magnum's place. But maybe turning Nikita babyface. Uh, was not a good idea because he was a much better heel than he was a babyface. Uh, I talk, mean, he was a superhero. Let's
0: talk about uh, Starcade 86. Of course, here uh, we see Ric Flair successfully defend his world title against Nikita Koloff. Arn and Ole Anderson fail to become the NWA World Tag Team Champions in their match against the Rock and Roll Express that we referenced earlier. But I want to ask a follow-up question about Nikita. It feels like this could have been a time to put the belt on him, similar to the way you know, they did when Kerry got, uh, Kerry Von Erick got a brief title run after David had died. Uh, obviously no one died here, but since, um, Nikita's kind of filling in for Magnum, wouldn't it have been a huge pop had Nikita actually won the belt at Starrcade 86, even if he only yeah. kept it for a couple of weeks.
1: Yeah. I and mean, that's armchair quarterbacking now, but
0: at the time you thought it was the right call to keep it on Flair.
1: Yeah, I, I thought so. Okay.
0: Uh, In December of 86, we start to see the seeds are being sown for some horseman dissension. Arn does an interview where he says he was promised a tag team shot. And since he hasn't gotten that, he's going after Nikita's U.S. belt. And he says he will personally restore the name Anderson. And Ole looks surprised. Ole has an interview on World Championship Wrestling that J.J. interrupts to say that Arn has a contract to wrestle Nikita for the title. And Ole looks annoyed. Uh, when did the talk of breaking up the horseman first start uh, to your recollection?
1: Uh, and, and why, was started,
0: Oli, why was, why was chosen as the odd man out?
1: Uh, because Ole was a guy that made things look real. He was the perfect guy to do this with. He was the oldest one of the group, so to speak. Uh, and the old school guy, and it seemed natural for him to do it. I th- the uh, the talk of breaking up the Horsemen or having a problem within the Horsemen was was really near the end of the Great American Bash near the end of that year, eighty six.
0: Uh, and and Ole is wanting to do more just office stuff and kind of retire from his in ring work. And yeah. and they did they already know at that time? Hey, we're going to look towards Luger, or do they start to think? Hey, who could be the guy? Um, when, when did we know that Luger would be the guy to make the replacement?
1: I think we knew almost immediately. And I don't think it, I don't think this was a horseman decision. I think it was a dusty decision.
0: Okay. Um, so we've got little nuances, you know, building to this moment when Oli would get kicked out. Arn would do commentary on an Oli match where he was critical of Oli. Arn would keep talking about being embarrassed that he doesn't have a belt. Uh, Tully would, uh, overly praise Oli in interviews and then all of a sudden, as we said, the big dog arrives, the, uh, the can't miss superstar, Lex Luger makes his debut on WCW, uh, and tells Tony that he wants to be a horseman. Mm. Um, did you and everybody else at the time feel like Luger because of his look was just can't miss?
1: Well, his interviews weren't good, right? He wasn't a good worker. Uh, he was an anomaly in that. He was given a top shot just based on his looks. uh. So I wasn't so sure that he would make a member, a good member of the four horsemen. Now let's keep in mind that I named the fucking crew Conrad. So you had to go through me first, right?
0: Sure. <laughs> I mean, you you put together the horsemen and then you <laughs> killed WCW by not losing weight fast enough. <laughs> uh,
1: uh, I just, I'm not, you know. I mean, I think we all knew that Luger would, if they were going to get the next star to be a horseman, Luger was going to be that guy. It couldn't be a member of the road warriors because they had their own team. So he was the man.
0: So later in this same show, it seems like all the issues with the Horsemen are smoothed over. And a couple of weeks later, JJ would announce that Luger is now an associate member of the horseman. Um, And later in that very same show, Lex would join the rest of the horsemen in a beatdown of Barry Wyndham, And then he would join the horsemen in unity at the end of the show. Oli was not present for that. Now let's fast forward, February 27th, 1987. Uh, it finally happens. Tully calls Oli's son, a snot nosed kid. Uh, and he is doing this because they're upset that Oli has taken some time to spend with his son and is using spending time with his son as an excuse for not being on TV. Uh, Dylan demands an apology and only slugged him. And then, uh, totally and only brawl all over the credits of the show. We see turns all the time in wrestling nowadays, but this sort of separation of the horseman was a big deal and made a big impact at the time. And it feels like the way they positioned it with Oli, saying he missed, you know, wrestling to go spend time with his son makes him a super sympathetic babyface. How do you feel like it was pulled off? What was the reaction from the crowd was were the boys happy with it afterwards?
1: yeah, everybody was happy with it uh it, it was well done it had a great impact on everyone and uh Ole was the perfect guy for this because of his not you know his injuries and wanting to remove himself from the ring and working with his son and uh you know again Olie was richer than anybody else. he had more money than anybody else, so he didn't need the work and it all worked out fine and Oli could, uh, again, just go back this weekend, go back and just listen to Oli Anderson interviews on on the network. Just real-life shit. He could pull it off as a heel or a baby face. This angle was well done.
0: A couple of weeks later, it's official. Luger is announced as a horseman, and in a backstage segment, Oli would confront Flair to see where he stood. Flair had made zero public comments up to this time, and that would lead Flair... Uh, to a huge beatdown in the locker room. Uh, It would start subtle, but Ole would keep pushing it, and then it was on. Uh, It seemed very reminiscent of when the horseman turned on Sting a few years later. A subtle nod from Rick as he says, do what's best for yourself before you get hurt, and then totally flipping out and leading the beatdown with the other horseman when Ole didn't heed the warning. Uh, Do you consider this to be like the prime of Flair's career? I think most people consider like 84 to 86 his prime yeah. um maybe some of his better matches were in 89 but 84 to 86 are probably as good as it gets for flair wouldn't you think
1: yeah i think so i, I think on a national level yes I, I think if you were like me and you watched some of his stuff with ricky steamboat in the old mid-atlantic championship wrestling days you would think that was his prime because they had some great shit back then uh but on a national level this is probably right
0: in May of 87 Dark Journey would be introduced as JJ J. Dillon's mm. executive secretary. Uh, mm. I can't wait to get your thoughts on her. You're you're licking your lips right now. What did she bring to the Horsemen? Uh and what was the thinking as to what the Horsemen were missing that Dark Journey could bring?
1: Yeah, I don't know what she brought to the Horsemen to be honest with you. Uh but <laughs> but uh we were I know what you're getting at. I didn't say anything. Yeah, I know you didn't. I know what these, I know what, okay.
0: (laughs) On June 6th, Tully would beat Dusty. Okay, we got something.
1: All right, I got it. We got something here. Uh, (laughs) Dark Journey was a gorgeous woman. Probably still is. She's probably a very lovely lady. Oh, gorgeous. Absolutely gorgeous woman. Uh, We were at the uh, stadium, and I think, I don't know when it was. This probably was the flair and – was probably the Flair and Ricky Steamboat match that I was talking about for the Great American Bash. Maybe she was there. Maybe it was later. But we were at the stadium in a big show, and she and I were talking. And, she said, and I remember this vividly. She said to me, I need a ride home. Where do you live? And I remember in my mind thinking, oh, my God. Oh, my God. And I said, well, I live down in Matthews. And she said, that's on my way. Could you take me home? And I said, hang on a second. Let me check. And I went to the backstage area, pretending to talk to somebody and came back and said, no, I'm supposed to go with so-and-so. I'm sorry. She said, "Okay, thanks. And. And you feel like you missed your chance. I don't know if I missed my chance, but I could have gotten in a whole lot of trouble that night. Uh, with Lois, with Dark Journey, with, with Planned Parenthood. Yeah, with, 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 with my with my whole life. Even just the fact that, look, look, okay, if, because of my relationship with Arn and Rick and Tully and those guys, if they knew that I had taken Dark Journey home, it wouldn't have if I had done something or not. I would have done something. So that would have lived with me for a long time. So I stepped out of that. I don't regret it. I wonder, but I don't regret it.
0: So if there was a pro wrestling documentary about this, would it be called Jungle Fever, Tony (laughs) Schiavone takes a dark journey?
1: No, no. Jungle Fever, Tony Schiavone sidesteps a dark journey.
0: If we don't have a dark journey t-shirt, were for Tony Schiavone. <laughs> well there's no there's uh. no justice. On June sixth, Tully would beat Dusty in a hundred thousand dollar T V title match where some shenanigans would take place. Dark Journey would distract Magnum, making his return to ringside action, and JJ would take the money. Magnum did a, a somewhat sad promo on TBS the following week saying he should have held on to the money, but he wasn't strong enough to. Why was Magnum brought out here? He doesn't necessarily look like the Magnum that we remember. Uh, A lot of people have been critical of this since and say it was in bad taste. Was there hope at some point he'd be able to return, or what was the thinking in in carting Magnum out for this? Well, we knew Magnum was not going to be able to
1: return. And his injury and his – I don't know how it was on a national level, but his injury and his uh, rehabilitation was such a big story in Charlotte, North Carolina – that dusty tried to draw on that and it was front page news it was the lead story on the on the nightly news uh, and uh, so I think they tried in hindsight it's it's probably wrong to do but I know he wanted to do it and of course he didn't look good and it wasn't really a good angle
0: the uh, Freebirds come in at this time very briefly and have a few matches with the Horsemen. Why don't you think that the Freebirds and Horsemen did more business together? Why didn't it work?
1: They were too much alike. With a blonde guy that talked and uh, a group of badasses. There wasn't a clear-cut healer babyface, I thought, in that you know, the Freebirds started out as a heel, but kind of became baby faces because of their rap and the way that Michael Hayes could talk and sure. the things they could do. And and that's kind of the way the horsemen were, too. So they were too much alike to really pull something off, I think. That's just my feeling. July 4th,
0: 1987. It's the very first War Games, and uh, you would have J.J. Dillon and the Four Horsemen taking on Dusty, Nikita, and the Road Warriors. Um, this was supposed to be a blow-off, uh, but... Ultimately, you guys would have more than one. Was it wise to do this so often? Did the war games draw money? Obviously, it probably did at first, but I wonder if it just got oversaturated eventually.
1: Yeah, it did. It got oversaturated. It was big at the beginning. Uh, Again, and I've talked about this before, I didn't like the finish of the first war games. Uh, I thought 1-2-3 would have been the way to do it or a submission to where there's a definite referee calling for the bell. Instead of JJ saying, "I give up, surrender or submit," I give up, and Jim Ross and I saying, "He gave up, he gave up." I thought that was kind of a popcorn fart, but I think the I think the look of two uh, two cages, two rings, uh, and the blood and the violence of it was really really cool. Uh, and then it started. We started doing too much of it to where it didn't mean a thing. It meant something because in the first one the teams that were involved and the horsemen being on one side, Dusty and the Road Warriors being on the other. It worked back then. Of course,
0: uh, JJ gets destroyed at the end of this war games by Hawk, right. separating his shoulder, never wrestling again. And the story is that all the horsemen hated whenever Hawk would come in last in these war games. Why is that?
1: Really? Well, because he was a crazy man. <laughs> I, I mentioned that before. I mean he gigged me in LA uh when 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 the lights were on Mike Hegstrand was really Hawk was really Hawk. Uh, and so he was, uh, he could be dangerous. Yeah. And
0: it was potato city. Uh, oh yeah. Luger beat Koloff for the U S championship in a cage in Greensboro on July 11th, 1987. And it feels almost like Luger is kind of passing Nikita here on the way to the top. How would you compare Luger and Nikita?
1: As workers or as guys or, or what do you what do you ask? In ring performers in the wrestling business. Uh I thought Nikita was a much better in ring performer. Uh especially when he first was Nikita Koloff in a super heel. The uh the sickle was tremendous. Uh he had that look about him. Uh I, I thought Nikita was much better. And you know, Nikita believed his gimmick. He really, you know, he he changed his name to Nikita S. Koloff. That's his real name now. And he went through all the process. I don't know how much it it costs for you to legally change your name, but he changed his name from Scott Simpson or whatever it was uh, to Nikita S. Koloff. He believed his gimmick. He kayfaved it all the time, all the time. Uh, And um, so – Based on that, I thought Nikita was a better character and a better worker than Luger. And it sounds like I'm shitting on Lex Luger, and I'm not. Uh, Luger brought a lot to the business. He really did. But, man, Nikita was, this is prior to the days of Magnum's injury, was a super fucking heel. Flair
0: begins a feud with Ronnie Garvin, uh, who dressed in drag and knocked out Flair in a match against his storyline brother, Jimmy. Uh, I'm Mm -hmm. sure we'll talk about this in more detail at the time, but is this the first time Ron Garvin was in drag
1: (laughs) that I know of? I saw Ronnie at legends of the ring. He wasn't wearing a dress then, uh, this past weekend. Uh, that whole thing has he
0: fully transitioned now or what's the deal?
1: What are you trying to say? Well, I don't know. Um, We just, you're trying trying to say that, that down through the years in wrestling, the last name Garvin has kind of been a, Controversial name. Controversial name behind you're, the scenes. You're welcome. I had to get you out of there. Thank you. I had to do a reach around. Okay, thank you for that. Uh, <laughs> that whole thing, look, that whole thing was an angle with Flair and a uh, Precious. Right. And Flair kissing the mannequin. Remember that? That was and great. And making, <laughs> making out with the freaking mannequin. And when he knocked out Flair, that was in a video that we did. When Flair had the you know, he had uh, won the date, I guess. And he precious. did the
0: hotel suite and the whole yes. deal. He was and uh, washed his mouth out and spit it in a plant and
1: yeah. He's got his got his socks on with his shorts on and, and Garvin comes in and knocks him out, chases JJ down. Bump in the it pool, was, the whole it, deal. It was it was hilarious. It was Ric Flair being it was Ric Flair being Rick Flair. And that's where he got knocked out. Uh, and of course, Remember, the name of Ronnie Garvin back then was Miss Atlanta Lively. Well, there you go. Let's talk about yeah.
0: some other ladies because almost as quickly as she came, uh, she went. Dark Journey is gone very quickly Ooh. here. Uh, what led to uh, Dark Journey uh,
1: getting out of town? I, I don't know. I have to. <laughs> you, know, the you know. People, you know. I, I, I'm not saying it. Why don't you tell me what you think led to it?
0: No, you got to give us some hints. Well, this oh. is this is the show where we don't pull punches. What are you doing?
1: I I have no idea why she left. No,
0: now you're lying, you k No, I'm not,
1: I'm not lying. I really don't why she left. Was it because she was having sex with somebody?
0: I don't know. Did she have a pregnancy scare?
1: Oh, uh, I. She could have.
0: Did she get a? Did she ride home with the wrong person? <laughs>
1: yeah, yeah. As Far as I'm concerned, she rode home with the right person. Uh, well, we don't know. Okay.
0: Yeah.
1: Yeah. Uh, she looked. She was. She was trouble. She was. She was trouble for the word go, man. She was gorgeous, beautiful. And if she wanted Tony Schiavone, that fat ass announcer, take her home. Then she was trouble.
0: They had another war games at the orange bowl. This time we had big Bubba under a mask as war machine, replacing the injured JJ Dillon. Uh, we haven't talked about Bubba a whole lot here in this run of Jim Crockett. I know if, if you put him in a match with Hulk Hogan in a big blue cage, uh, you give it six and a quarter stars, but what'd you think of big Bubba working under a mask here as war machine?
1: Well, uh, Bubba was a tremendous worker for a big guy. Um, and I'm not so sure the war machine thing was, was good, but I thought Bubba had a lot of potential and I, we were right. Right. Yeah. I mean he worked work as Big Bubba, he could work as big boss man, he could work as the guardian angel. Uh whatever gimmick he had, he did a good job of working in. So uh loved him. Good big guy, could take bumps.
0: Uh Ronnie Garvin would beat the world champion, Nature Boy Ric Flair, in a cage match in September of eighty seven. In hindsight, a lot of fans look at this and think it's a little WTF. Uh, but a lot of people make the argument that this was a good idea to put the title on Ronnie at the time. Uh, was this trying to find the next foil for the horseman since, uh, Magnum's gone, Nikita's not setting the world on fire. do the horseman just need a new, you know, somebody new to battle with. And they
1: think maybe we can make something out of Ron Garvin here. Yes, that was the thing. And Ronnie could perform quite well. He and Flair had good matches, uh, I was in Detroit that night when they switched the title. Uh, and Ronnie and I were talking about this when I saw him just this past weekend. By the way, he he was not dressed in drag, in case you want to ask me. Uh, but Ronnie and I were talking this weekend about it, and I said, Ronnie, do you remember when you won the title in Detroit? And he said, yes. And me and Ronnie Garvin and I think Ricky Morton and Michael Hayes went out to dinner that night in Greektown in Detroit. If you've ever been to Detroit – their Greek section is wonderful. Downtown Detroit. It's very nice. Restaurants stay open late. We had a, a guy came over with a violin. And he played my way for Ronnie. And the next night, we were going to be in Norfolk, Virginia. And I was traveling around as a ring announcer with them at that time. And we got off the plane in Norfolk the next day. Now, this is before the Internet. We got off the, uh, the next day, and there were always – And I don't want to further this story, if you don't mind. But there always were a bunch of girls Mm -hmm. who would meet wrestlers at the airport. And take care of them. And what we mean by take care of them is drive drive them around,
0: do laundry, help them get some
1: food, stuff like that. Exactly. Exactly. And they were great kids. They were all great kids. And they always gave us rides. So they were waiting on us to get off the plane. And I remember getting off the plane, and one of them looked at me and said, "So, <laughs> would you stop that?" I didn't.
0: I didn't say anything.
1: You said, Where "Don't was- further the conversation." I didn't. Okay. Well, then there's something in my headset. Must be a short and a wire here. So I remember. <laughs> I'm of- sure there was a short wire that day for those girls. <laughs> God, this is a great story that you are completely fucking up. I'll be it. Sorry. So I remember one of the girls saying to me, so Ronnie won the world title last night. And I went, I remember thinking, holy shit. How does word spread this quickly when it happened in Detroit last night? And here we are in the morning coming on a morning flight to Norfolk, Virginia, and they know already. That's just how uh, things happened in wrestling back then. That's how, I guess, big mouth wrestlers were with their friends. So I was, and I told Ronnie, I said, and you remember when we got there and, and all the girls knew that <laughs> you were the champion. He went, yeah. So oh, unbelievable. So.
0: Cool story, bro. <laughs> um, Starrcade was once again, dominated by the presence of the horseman. Dusty somehow beats Luger in a steel cage where Luger looked to be in his prime and dusty, maybe not so much. Um, was that the right decision at the time? People have been critical of, trying to push Luger and him being, you know, this physical specimen, Dusty maybe being on the downslide, uh, not in his best, most prime condition, but he still gets the win. Was this the right call or should they have let Luger go over here?
1: They should let Luger go over here.
0: I think so too.
1: Yeah. If he was going to be the big baby face that, uh, he was positioned to be, then he should have, he should have gone over. No question.
0: Is this an example of the booker doesn't always need to be one of the boys yeah in the same starcade we see Flair get his world title back from garvin and tully and arn would retain their world title belts against the road warriors and so this gets us a promo from arn where he is expressing disappointment that every member of the horseman has gold around their waist a shot at luger of course luger looks unhappy at this uh it seems like arn is um always figured in here when he's trying to kick somebody out, I guess if he started it, he's kicking folks out. Right. Uh, What was the decision or the thinking to, Hey, I know we just put him in, but let's turn him and let's have the horseman turn on him. And then let's make him a baby face is the, is the thinking, Hey man, we don't have enough baby faces over here. Uh, Magnum's gone. Nikita's maybe on his way down. Uh, dusty is still around, but maybe not as, as sharp as he once was let's go ahead and have the loss to Dusty result in a babyface turn for Luger because we
1: need more help on the baby side. Right. And it, it goes to the old thing to where he gets the rub from the horseman and the best time to turn a heel babyface is when a heel is, re- is red hot. I'm not so sure how red hot Luger was as a heel, but uh, the, the, the time was right at that time. So, chat me up. Do you think
0: they did that too fast? Do you think they could have stretched this horseman turn for Luger a little longer?
1: Yeah, I, I guess so. I, I don't know. That's that's it's hard to, that's hard here in 2017 to to go back and say yeah they should have stretched a little bit longer. But well, let's talk. I just I just kind of thought, and I know I'm old school, and and I've always been a friend of Ole Anderson, and uh, and I know Ole was on his way out and not wanting to wrestle anymore. But to me, the, and I know a lot of people, to me, Ole Anderson made the horseman much better than Lex Luger did. And Lex just kind of seemed like an odd man out there. I thought he should have been a top baby face. He had the look. December 2nd, 1987.
0: It's the bunkhouse stampede. The final four are Dylan Luger, Anderson, and Blanchard. Uh, Dick Boyne would write in the Four Horsemen book, Dylan told the referee they would all split the prize money and share in the victory, but the referee told them there had to be a single winner. So Dylan asked the others if they would let him have one last victory in his career as the winner. Arne and Tully agreed and jumped over the top rope and eliminated themselves, but Luger did not. When J.J. got in his face, Luger grabbed Dylan and threw him over the top, therefore winning the bunkhouse stampede. The others jumped Luger at that point, And it was a classic horseman beating. Arn would speak for the group after the incident. He said one year ago, JJ J. Dillon came to me, came to Flair, came to Tully and said, there's a guy down in the Everglades of Florida who has a fantastic body and is willing to learn a diamond in the rough. So what we did was sacrifice our time to train Luger in the aspects of being a horseman, he came along real well. Well, Luger for you to stand in the forefront correct J.J. Dillon verbally, then put your hands on him physically. You put yourself in no man's land, fella. The four horsemen were here long before you came here, and they're going to be here long after you leave. Don't cry about the game plan. The problem was the execution. The game plan was fine, and you just weren't the athlete to pull it off. And with that, Lex Luger is officially out of the horseman. So we covered the beginning of the four horsemen today all the way up until they kicked out Lex Luger um, is there any question that of these two incarnations, your favorite is the first that it's,
1: uh, only an Arn and Tully. Yep. No question. And and I base it on this, uh, because to me first is always best. And because I was there at the formation, but I also based it on the fact that, uh, like Arn Anderson, Ole Anderson had a real ass promo, right? Go back and listen to some of the last, some of that shit that Ole said, man. It was real life, good stuff, Uh, and that's why I thought it was a better incarnation. It's not anything to say about Lex Luger, but uh, Ole Anderson, to me, was one of the greats of all time.
0: How will they be remembered?
1: Well, unfortunately, they're not going to be remembered uh, with Ole uh, thanks to – it was Ole's fault because uh, when the four horsemen were inducted into the Hall of Fame, Ole should have been a part of it. But he never will be a part of it because the way he – Talked to Vince McMahon and Linda and during the takeover and everything. Uh, and, uh, and so did you see that he's, he's often retold the story
0: where he says what he said, but did you see him say it?
1: No, I did not. That was, that was before we, that was before we went down there. That was, I guess, back when I guess Jim Barnett and, um, Sold out I shouldn't say sold out, but sold his portion to Vince McMahon and and I guess the Briscoes did as well. And Vince took over Georgia Championship Wrestling. And Ole didn't want that, and Ole was was very unkind to Vince and Linda. And therefore Ole will never be recognized on the Hall of, in the Hall of Fame as a member of the Four Horsemen. When in reality, anybody who was ever a member of the Four Horsemen should be recognized. In the Hall of Fame, they should be. If you're going to say we're going to put the Four Horsemen in the Hall of Fame, and you don't put Ole, and I guess they didn't put uh, Luger either, did they? They recognize Barry Windham, yep, and they and they recognize Arn and Flair and J.J. and Tully, which is the right thing to do. But if you're really going to put the Four Horsemen in the Holland, I don't want to stand on the soapbox about this. It should be everybody involved. And and Ole's not doing well.
0: So they should have put Paul Roma in. Yes. And Chris yes. Benoit.
1: Yes. Sure they should have. Oh,
0: I disagree. Well anyway, okay. that's what we get to do. And you know what? We had so much fun doing this. We're gonna keep it going, guys. We're gonna cover more four horsemen next week. Uh so there's no poll to vote on, but we do encourage you, go ahead and check out how to win one of these books right now over at facebook.com forward slash WHW Monday for copies of this book. We're going to keep the horseman love going next week. So far, Oli's been kicked out and Luger's been kicked out. You know, what's coming next. And there's only one place to get it, and it's right here on what happened when with Tony Schiavone, you know, Tony, usually at this time of the show, we end with you kind of recreating that nitro magic. Right. Can, can you muster up some sort of Jim Crockett Promotions exit for us to throw to the end of the show this week? I, I think I can. All right. Well, let's do it. As I look at my clock, it looks like we went long today. Over two and a half hours of horseman goodness. Put a bow on it for us, Mr. Shivani.
1: Thank you very much. And uh, here with David Crockett. And, David, before we go any further, I do agree with you. That Conrad Thompson is a shit-disturbing asshole, but he's still a lovable shit-disturbing asshole. And as we change and go forward now World Championship Wrestling, we're going to take you back in time and take a look at one of the moments that began the idea of the Four Horsemen. We talked a lot about the different incarnations of the Horsemen here, and we talked about Flair being the centerpiece, but there is no question that Arn Anderson and his promos are what set the standard for the horsemen. Arn Anderson and his promos are exactly what led to the formation of the horsemen. And here is the first time, David, settle down over there for for crying out loud, settle down. Here for the first time, we're going to see Arn Anderson talk to me on WCW Saturday night, or at that time, WCW World Championship Wrestling featuring the stars of the NWA. We're going to see him mention the Four Horsemen, just the beginning of the legend. Take a look. We saw a man, Billy Jack Haynes, out here not too long ago. said some threatening words to you and Ole Anderson, Arn Anderson, about taking those national tag team titles away from you guys during Star Well, Tony Giovanni, every time I walk in Gold's Gym, I have six or eight muscle heads threatening me. So it's nothing new The main thing is what you've got right here in the ring you've got a champion. You've got Tully Blanchard. You've got Ole Anderson. You've got myself. And last, but by no means least, you've got Ric Flair, the world's heavyweight champion. You're talking about the four horsemen of professional wrestling, the people that make things happen. And coming up, you've got the gathering, which is the biggest event ever wrestling-wise on the face of this earth. Now, Dusty Rhodes. Just because they gave you a stacked deck and let you wear that loaded boot, don't think by any means that the match, and I mean the match, with our cousin Ric Flair is going to be anything except the same result. They're going to tote you out on a slab, maybe with two broke legs, because if you think we're going to stray very far, you're sadly mistaken.